Hey, it's Tia Carrer, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. I think it was on Prime and it suggested do you want to watch Punisher Warzone I thought yeah I do because that was one of the best Punishers he was a really good Punisher it seemed though that everyone disliked it apart from me but he was really it was really it was a really grimy miserable film and I think that was what put a lot of people off no nah, it didn't put me off um and I, I mean, it once. it's not really meant to be a knockabout comedy, though, is it? To be fair, no, it's, no, on, on the front, it's not Matthew McConaughey yanking Ray Stevenson's tie, um, <laughs> and like, like looking impishly over his shoulder. But it is, um, it is harsh that. Well, we say just in case we do use this as a bit of an intro. Welcome to Kino Kingdom seventy two, and literally just before we sort of started recording, as in minutes before, we just found out about the the sad passing of Ray Stevenson, who was one of my favourite punishes. I. I mean, I'm familiar with him from. He seemed to be a sort of character actor in a lot of bits and yeah, pieces. Yeah. But Punisher Wars, but he always elevated films because he had he had real charisma. Yes. He had, he, had a, he was this big, stocky, cool-looking, a sexy bloke as well. He would have been in the Arkans Bar. Well, he is. He's in. He's in the Arkans Bar now. But yeah, yeah maybe yeah, we'll have a room of spirits. Oh, Not that's just a, a really yeah, nice yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah. spirit um, bar. Um, yes, I know him. I suppose best from the tv series rome she's got to be almost 20 years old now mind but he was brilliant in that rome oh rome sorry yeah Yeah, he played titus in that he was uh he's just a really cool character like kind of like big lug really but with a sort of with a heart of gold and uh it's kind of simple loyalty um to the main character so he's really cool just a great sidekick really um but yeah i I know what you mean he did he he'd rock up in something like you'd see him in like thor or whatever and you and And you think just to elevate yeah 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 you you get that a lot with 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 certain actors where you're watching a film and then someone rocks up you didn't might not have known was in it and you think ah good good i'm glad i'm looking at you i'm glad you're here (laughs) yeah and uh, yeah mark strong is another one of those just like absolutely it's like good i'm glad yes Uh, two yeah he's sort of the um well i didn't know i it's i was reading about him i I thought he was an american actor he's an irish actor um who uh, raised yeah i didn't i think i've only ever heard him speak with an american accent in his roles though i see i just assumed he's british because of he's in rome but um yeah i can imagine i yeah i can imagine that because he's mostly paid been well in hollywood movies really isn't he yeah. Although, yeah. is there any is there any possibility that he started out on EastEnders? I mean, they usually do, don't they? I'm I'm looking at this. Well, actually, it's tele, television Band of Gold. Don't know that. Oh, I'm is that the I'm one about Band of Brothers? Uh, it's about, I don't know. But... Yes, it sounds like yeah, yes. Yes. Um, Peak Practice. Oh, yeah, so very <laughs> Holby City, The Bill, DL and Pasco. It's like everything except EastEnders, isn't it, really? Yeah. And then, yeah, so, um, and then, yeah, looking at his uh, filmography, yeah, Punisher Wars. Actually, that was like one, two, he th- was in King Arthur, three, four. Punisher, Punisher was like one of his first starring roles. Oh, and he was in, oh, he was in Outpost, which was that film I reviewed, and I think I, think I quite liked it. 
Uh, yes, I remember quite liking that. Yeah, that was that was when I went through my my phase. I think I covered that on the podcast. But yeah, Book of Eli. But it's just Punisher wasn't. That was I'll have to watch that again because that was the one that made me think, oh, good. And I thought, oh, please just be the Punisher for a few films. And of course, that wasn't the case. But no, it's um, that's just really upsetting. That is, he's, he's a good man. Fifty eight. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Mm, it is ridiculous. I hope. I hope it's just. I don't know something sudden and natural. Something. Yeah. We seem to be in the middle of filming something, so I don't know. I but she was obviously working. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Well, I guess it will come to light at some point. Yeah. It's notice also. Rest in peace, Ray Stevenson. You're the first entry in our spirit bar. The Athens bar. bar. But yeah, it's, uh, we'll have to watch some Ray Stevenson films too. Have you seen Outpost? No. You should. You should. I would suggest because that's got Michael Smiley in it as well. Good. And he is another. Not to be one. confused with Outlander, the one with Jim Caviezel. God. The first episode of I was thinking because every now and again I look through um I look through our I never listen back to our old episodes, but I, I might start doing it actually. But I I look back at the titles. And the first Kino Kingdom episode one, which is like 2020, was called Jim Caviezel's Windows. And I, I, I just remember, I vaguely remember me talking about two years ago now. It was something to do with someone coming downstairs and then he, you know, Jim Caviezel throws them through the windows and they're single glazed. It's something to do with having single glazing. <laughs> just, just single glazing so thin you can walk through it and it doesn't shatter. <laughs> Yeah, it just kind of bends away from <laughs> just you. Just kind of boom, 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 boom around <laughs> you. Of course, there's Barry McGuigan dancing between two panes of them as well. Um, <laughs> oh, there's a cat shitting yeah. in my garden. There you go. This is a riveting you, podcast conversation for you. You haven't got a cat. I don't have a cat. It's, it's a neighbour's cat. She's having a shit in my garden because it thinks it's a massive litter tray. Massive toilet. Yeah, it was so harsh that the cats in your street must like meet up and they're in the middle of a conversation and then and they're like, I'm gonna have a shit in the toilet anyway. And, and it's like you're so just that's what they think of your house. That's what they think of the thing you've got to spend all your money on. It's just a shit hole. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, so films yeah. then. Yeah, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um yeah, so films. I've got a few things I want to just chat about before we get into oh, yeah. films, and that's just a few things that um they are linked to to films. Um I, you know, on Amazon Prime they've got freebie. Yes. And, and I've always just just tossed my hair and laughed gaily at it because I thought if I'm paying for Prime, what I don't want is something with adverts in it. Mm. Um, but the other day, I and this ties into something else I'm going to mention before we go into the, the film the film section of the podcast. Um, I was after a certain show and. I watched it and I, it's actually really good because mm-hmm. the adverts as like like adverts as if in heaven because you get like 25 to 30 minutes of a film and then yeah. there's a 15 second advert and then it automatically yeah. goes straight out of the film and I thought oh I can cope with this so it's opened yeah. a whole new channel for me I was like this is brilliant I don't know how they possibly like finance a channel off that but I was like over the moon with it have you ever used freebie I have and I and I wonder yeah I don't know whether there's some sort of thing going on where, like, if you have, if you pay for Prime, then you get fewer adverts on Freebie. Oh, but okay. I, I watched, well, we watched like two episodes of Bosch, uh, the latest series of Bosch uh, on there, which is obviously like two hours, basically. 
and there wasn't a single ad break the entire time and then like there was one on the next episode it's like it, it was strange and i have watched other things since and it's been pretty was minimal it, was it maybe a, was it two ad breaks per film? yeah yeah brilliant i'm over the moon with that i can cope with yeah. that i, I um, don't know whether if you don't have prime then maybe you get a few more but nah, that's not a me problem <laughs> yeah, that's not, not on my radar. Uh, I tell you, and this again ties into to streaming services. You know, we've often talked about the worst streaming service on this channel, Rakuten, the worst streaming service. Yes. Well, and the name, we, isn't it? <clears throat> oh, yes. It's, 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 it's the punchline. Um, the, what's it called? The tagline. And we've also talked about other ones that have come close. Uh, yeah. well, what's the other one that was really bad as well? The, oh, um, Paramount Plus. Where yeah. it was just like the, the buffering and like aspect ratio changes for no reason. I think it's not the 1950s. Well, I watched a pay per view on WWE Network the other day, and it is like it was. It was like I pressed play, and someone came out of a TV and threw a gauntlet down in front of me to say, "We want to join the table. We want to be considered as the worst streaming service." Brett, um, t- take us seriously because. I watched the pay-per-view, which is four hours long, right, on WWE Backlash. I watch wrestling very rarely, but I do enjoy it when I watch it. And I've noticed this before whenever um, I've watched, like, a Royal Rumble or something, that it'll just freeze. Like, you're watching it, and it'll and it'll freeze, and then – and it's like, oh, it's just buffering. Of course it's buffering. The only That and Paramount Plus, the only two things I ever watch the buffer. And – and then it'll just sometimes it's just like oh I pause it or I'll go back a bit no and it and it just locks so I have to like go out because I watch it through my Xbox go back out quit close it down like and go back in and then and then but anyway right this has the got search, its own app on Xbox this has got its own app on Xbox right, okay. um so there's two other aspects of this as well so that is bad it will just freeze and you're like of course of yeah. course and I know it's the app because nothing else does it puff Paramount Plus and then. But if you want to watch, like, see, because they work like WrestleMania and they go by the year. So you're like, I want to watch WrestleMania 13, right? I want to watch WrestleMania 13. Mm-hmm. So you go to the search function, which obviously has a slight delay as you move between move between characters. Good. Mm-hmm. And then so, so you're constantly like having to like edit it slightly. You type in WrestleMania and it says, oh, you're obviously looking for WrestleMania. And you're like, yeah, OK. So you scroll down. But of course, they're not in order. They're completely randomized numbers. <laughs> so you're just clicking through and, t- and these random like 13, it'll be like 12, 1, 9, 32. <laughs> like I wouldn't mind if this was in order, to be honest. And it happens with all of them. And and the other thing, so what I was dealing with all this thinking this really isn't good for a multi-billion dollar like enterprise. Anyway, so I was watching Backlash. It got through to about the three hour mark. I was coming at the last match, three out of four hours. Of course it froze. And I thought, of course, right? Of course it's frozen. So I quit out and went back in. But of course, this was it wasn't live, but it it was on a night a couple of nights before. So they hadn't had time to kind of edit it into chapters. So I had oh. to I had to skip through in ten second intervals, oh. holding the button down. And there was no other way to search. And I was thinking, this is probably the worst moment of my life <laughs> and i was just holding it and it was like 10 20 30 and i thought oh my god this is in seconds and i was there for ages just trying to get through to the final match and i just this is just infuriating it's like they're trying to be worse than rakuten the worst streaming service so um yeah bbc i players no walk in the park either to be honest oh really <laughs> it's, like, it's astonishing like that one is uh 
is iPlayer. Like, you know, like normally on a video on any streaming service, if you like tap or click in the middle of the screen, it pauses it, right? Mm-hmm. Not with iPlayer. With iPlayer, like depending on where you click on the screen, it skips to that point. Like, you know, because imagine there's a bar at the bottom. But it acts it, like it takes up the whole yeah, screen. It's like the entire screen is like is like a is like a, a scrub kind of bar, time so bar. Yeah. yeah. So you, so if you click in the middle of the screen, it just jumps to the middle of the video. If you click to the right of the screen, then it jumps to the end. It's amazing. And I mean, like, why would anyone design it like that? There's a reason why there is there are generic rules for these things. Standardized, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's astonishing. I'm glad. I might just start. You know, you get like um, weird ones, like what's it called, Crisp, crispy rolls or whatever they are, or the weird the yeah. weird apps that you see that you never install and Crunchy so on. Yeah. Crunchy roll. Just think, I might just go through them just to see which one is truly the. If any of them are recruited beaters, but uh, yeah, WWE now is is astonishing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I suppose. I mean, we joke about recruiting. It probably isn't not the worst streaming service. It's just uh, it has its frustrations. I'm editing what you just said out. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We can't have you saying that. I know. It'll it'll ruin our street cred. Um, And the other thing I wanted to say, there's two other things. Um, I stayed in a hotel the other day and got back after my night out and was with Faye. And I just put on the channel that was like the previous resident of that room had left on and it was some weird i don't, I don't watch tv so i don't really know what channels there are anymore i'm, I'm, I'm the last time i watched tv regularly semi-regularly was back in the days of like bravo and rtl2 and there's obviously a reason i remember those two channels and um and then um yeah so i, I put it on and it was on some ghost hunting show and um, so i i i do you know what rupert i was I was mesmerized because I, I I do not believe in 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 the supernatural realm at all, and it was, and I remember when I used to watch these things, I would kind of scoff at them, you know, oh, what a load of bollocks. But now I just thought I was I was entranced by how much they would reach for things to, to for supernatural claims, and there was two one of them I can't like a remember. wonky photo frame or something. Even more so than that. I've got I've got one example for you. It's amazing. So that we watched because I enjoyed watching this one show and it was an Americanized show and it was a guy talking like this and it was really boring and he narrated everything and he looked like a twat and it, it was from the like early two thousands. And everything he said was supernatural. Like, oh, that's clearly supernatural. We're in the woods. What was that? Oh, it's clearly supernatural. That's a ghost. Oh, a ghost just blew up my bum. Lies. Anyway, um, so. Then when I got home, I said, "Fair, I need to watch another one." So we settled on Coast Hunters International, which is a more sort of sober affair. Like they at least, they at least treat they they go they go. We, there was one in in Margam Castle actually, which we watched recently, and it's like they turn up and they've they say right we and then they then they they meet the owner of the property and then the claimant and they say right people have seen this and this and this. So they set up the cameras and then it shows them in the evening wandering around in the nightlight, saying, "Oh no, if anyone was there, <laughs> fly up my bum." And um, like that's the only way that the ghost can speak, um, like an anal glove puppet. And so, but there was one. With the, but what I was thinking, I was just saying, talking to Faye about the structure of the whole thing, right? So this is an an American company, and they fly internationally. So I'm assuming these people pay them to come around and you know say, can you prove? Because obviously, if you say you want a haunted property, and then it gets the stamp of haunted approval from like Ghost Hunters International, they can then say. As proved by Ghost Hunters International, this is a haunted property. Uh, yeah. So as featured on, yeah. Yeah, it's featured on. So anyway, right, all this is going on. 
And what's bizarre is sometimes there's never any conclusive proof. It's almost like because there's no such thing as ghosts. It's bizarre. No. Anyway, this is the early 2000s, so 2004, five, I think, anything like that. And they, they'll have some episodes where they'll sit there and then someone will, someone will like stand up suddenly and say, oh, Christ, the ghost just flew up my bum. And, and, then, and then at the end of it, they'll sit opposite like the person who owns it and say, oh, well, uh, you know, the, the the sort of person who owns the property and they'll be sitting with a laptop and a press play and it'll show someone standing up and saying, oh, a ghost just flew up my bum. And and what you're looking at really is just someone standing up and yeah. saying so, saying something, right? And the other person will be over the moon with it, like, I bloody, bloody knew it. I knew it was haunted. And that's proof that the ghost flipped your bum, you said. And then other times they'll be, they'll be watching it. Uh, and there was one where they were, <laughs> they were watching like a static camera they'd set up. And there was literally, I, I don't even know how, it, it was like a like a single pixel in the bottom right corner flashed white. And that was enough for them to say, well, we, we couldn't explain that. Uh, so that's mm. a ghost. But then other times they'll hear a sound that even I was thinking, unless that's been piped in, that does sound like a voice talking. And they'll say, oh, but unfortunately that's all we heard is like someone whispering, Ooh. get out. But they just could have been fans of modern horror. Um, so, but, but then... They're like, oh, but that wasn't enough. So they've got no scale. So there's no consistency. There's no the, consistency in their, their claims. Right. And what, like, yeah. Which makes it, for me, even more hypnotising to watch. Because yeah. it's like, what are they going to see? What are they going to claim? And then what's going to come out of it? Yeah. So, yeah. It's, uh, honestly, what are they going to see? What are they going to claim? What are they going to dismiss arbitrarily? And you're thinking, hang on, I could do with a bit more. Yeah, because that, that was that you've recorded a voice saying, "I'm a ghost. I'm about to fly up your bum, by the way," and and you're like, "Oh, that did sound like something." Or, or then there'll be like a single pixel flash, and they're like, "No, no, that's a ghost. That's a ghost." So <laughs> if if anyone's interested, it's on it's on Freevee. It's Ghost Hunters International, and I've started using it as almost like my nightlight because it's it's it's. It, I've got a thing about whispered voices anyway. I find them really relaxing. So it starts off and it's just people talking and these boring voices. And then, of course, they're walking around like whispering to each other. And you just hear like the crunch of gravel. It's almost like ASMR. So I've, I've mm. been really into that recently. But, yes, yeah, it's astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Um, excellent. That particular series um, is recommended. Ghost no, well, I, I, I may look at others, but it's the least irritating. The other ones, the okay. American ones, the other ones I've seen where it's like really Americanized. It's just really bombastic with a stupid soundtrack. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Excellent. that's all I wanted to say, really. OK, good. Um, so was there anything else you needed to disclose? No, I've talked, for, I've talked for a lot. There's one. Well, well, I'll just put it out there. Maybe we can talk about it the next sure. episode. I was thinking the other day, I was talking to Faye about uh, John Carpenter films. And yes. and I, I mentioned Assault on Precinct 13, yes. of which I like the remake as well, because Ethan walks in it, it was in the bar. And I, I said, that scene where the girl gets shot yes. was was really shocking. The I, vanilla I just, twist I, scene. But yes, yes, of course, they scream. And... Um, and I thought, I wonder what other films, and this is for the for you and the listeners as well, email us at themenwhotalkatoutlook.com. Not a film that is shocking, but an individual scene in a film that is still shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I, I would say, the two I've written down, I'm looking at my notes as examples, are the girl being shot in Precinct 13 and the bit in Boogie Nights where he gets his tip out. <laughs> I remember just they talking about the end. You guess what? I thought, oh, good, I get it. Look at it. Um, but that was like, oh, wow, I didn't expect to see a full-blown one. Um, so 
yeah, it. I was just thinking, anything popped to your head? Not not a horror, like obviously not something like irreversible, but yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because just... there are films which go out there to shock, but like what? Yeah, none spring instantly to mind. Like of genuinely shocking scenes in otherwise fairly innocuous films. I'll have yeah. to give it some thought. I'm sure something will come to me in the course of this episode. I still think that the music in Assault on Precinct 13 is among his best work because it's just one piece of music that gets built upon for 90 minutes. It's so clever. Sometimes you're just listening to like a synthetic drum and you're thinking, oh my God, kick in, kick in, because I know how good it is. Is that the one they remixed for Xenon 2 on the Amiga? Mega Blast, yes. Xenon 2 Mega Blast, yeah. Good. Um, yeah, excellent stuff. Um, right then. Okay, so I was going to kick off with a couple of um, quite recent movies, a couple of Marvel movies. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, as you've obviously just give your voice a bit of a rest. I might as well whisper yeah, this. Please do. I watched Spider-Man Far From Home uh, on Prime. And this this is the one that would appear to be the final part of the tom holland spider-man trilogy uh and this time around there's there's like a multitude of bad guys the reason for this is because basically peter parker wants everyone or at least most people to forget that he's spider-man so he asked dr strange to cast a memory spell but this ends up creating this kind of vacuum into other Mm. dimensions and drags other versions of himself and his nemeses into his reality um, so suddenly he's got to deal with like Green Goblin, Doctor Octopus, is that his name? Um, yeah, yeah. The Sand Guy, uh, the Electricity. <laughs> is he just Sandman? Sandman, sand yeah. Sandman, Sandman, right? Okay. Uh, the Electricity Guy. Sand Electro. What is wrong with you? These are names. Kids yeah, I... can remember. Sand Sand Person. Ele- electronic Dude. <laughs> Yeah. Electro, it's like it's a knockoff. It was directed by Albert P, and I'm not sure it was the actual correct version I was watching. But no, I, I've watched this, so I'm happy to talk about this with you. Can you? Sure. Thomas Hayden Church does return, doesn't he? The yes, Sandman. very in a CG fashion and very briefly at some yeah, point. Yes. Um. So. Oh yeah. So you also get. He also gets to meet the other Peters, e.g. Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield and they have a kind of bromance and they need to work together to take down all the baddies uh and now I, I my issue I have an issue since Doctor Strange came onto the scene because in Marvel generally because what was already pretty threat free in terms of adhering to cause and effect is can, now can now be actively reversed and deleted completely devoid of any worldly he's, he's basically an in-universe edit function yeah it's astonishing and so it it really doesn't matter who dies or who forgets stuff or who's an enemy or any of that because basically all of the established rules of human drama that we've enjoyed for thousands of years since the dawn of cave paintings through whispered stories around campfires through shakespeare it comes to nothing with this and we might as well just pack up and go home because to say that the dramatic weight of marvel movies has dissipated would be a a tragic understatement um because actually there's i quite 
it's quite nice watching the Spider-Men unite and have their bro banter. But in terms of actual dramatic content, it's like it's just weightless, uh, which is, of course, what. Well, this is what I, if you remember, because I, I watched this, it's quite fresh in my mind, because I watched, mm-hmm. uh, what, was the, what was the one before this called, Far From Home, and there was like, No, no Way Home, is that previous? Homecoming? Homecoming? That, again, I, I was watching this, and I enjoyed these two films up to a point, as you know, things explode larger in the shed, but which we'll yeah. get to. But with Homecoming, which I was watching it, and I think, I was thinking, I'm watching a multi-million dollar, a multi-hundred million dollar movie, and my favourite parts are the high school banter, which is yeah. bizarre anyway, because I'm not the target audience. <gasps> but, yeah, and it was the same with this. Yeah. It's like, when they're just having, like, little chats in between scenes, that's when I was like, oh, I'm enjoying this, and then when, yeah. of course... There's a bit uh, less of it this time. So it was exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it, I, yeah, so there's kind of, like, if you remember, there's, like, this sort of a sucker punch type emotional ending which may seem quite profound in the moment but you know you just have to think if peter sits down with doctor strange and they just have a good think about it they can probably find another sequel can't they till this doesn't matter (laughs) nothing matters nothing matters so yeah so basically doctor strange broke the storytelling and i'd have to say on top of all that you know into the spider-verse and indeed, no doubt, the upcoming Across the Spider-Verse, I think it's called. But Into the Spider-Verse already did the dimension-hopping Spider-Man thing better and much more kind of mind-bendingly and subversively. And Cage. Yes. And dared to kind of break the fourth wall and stuff. And uh, it was just better. I just thought this was... I don't know. It just seems like... It, it, it's almost like it's it's anti-drama it's like it's like there's so few rules like it's not it's not even as if there are it, it's rules but they can be rewound it doesn't make it it completely nullifies any sense of threat at all and i and it makes it intensely boring as far as i'm concerned it's it's the problem in the comics as well because in, especially and I've mentioned it before like overpowered cases like Superman there's no they, they operate on a level that is there's no you can't like relate with so yeah. everything's of such scale um, what I will say about this though like obviously the, the banter was good with um, the banter but there yeah. is nothing not, apart from the fact that halfway through there's a twist that effectively is just ripped from Iron Man three mm-hmm. but also. There is nothing in this world more boring than drones. Uh, like as a, as as like they should. Anytime anyone writes a film from no one, if they mention drones, it's like no, unless it's one one drone, like yeah. multiple drones. If they're so boring, it's just like watching someone fight a cloud of flies. Effectively, yeah. so you think this isn't. There's no sense of threat here, really. It's it's effectively like watch. I feel like I'm watching someone just like stamp on ants coming out of an anthill, but just in the sky. It's so boring. And it may as well have just been Tom Holland shouting at pigeons at the end, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe that'll be the next one. Is this is you said this this ends the Tom Holland trilogy? Is that is that is I it done? Know. Is that? I hope so. He, um, he is. Be, I would describe him as my Spider-Man. He is because yeah. out of I didn't see because he's an I, actual I, child. Yeah, like Andrew Garfield. I didn't I didn't see any of those films, and I didn't I. I remember, I mean, you're talking with, I think I watched the first one with Tobey Maguire, but I really like Tobey Maguire. Right. Um, 
but then I've actually seen two of the th- of his three. So I was like, okay, he's my like I can I can get on board with it. You know, like with the Batman thing, there's people yeah. who are good as Bruce Wayne and good as Batman. He does seem to be good as both Tom Holland. Um, yeah. But yeah, it again, I'm so my attitude towards these films is basically if Marvel went bust and disappeared tomorrow, it wouldn't bother me in the slightest. I have no in- interest in because because they're not making any more Punisher films. <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah and it, it's much the same with dc like i only really care about batman and now um the one i watched the other day with um man thing in it uh, you know the um werewolf by night which i was yeah. completely blindsided by so yeah yeah i mean i i'll probably end up watching this at some point again spider-man far from like when my son watches it again right well i also watched guardians of the galaxy 3 i'm so, excited to hear what you think about this so um Gamora played by Zoe Saldana see I knew the character name there she is somehow alive <laughs> I don't remember how or when she came back to life because uh, I'm sure she didn't she die in Avengers but here she is anyway you're so, asking the wrong person I'm afraid I don't know she, she probably she must have got resurrected at some point anyway she has no memory of Star-Lord um Chris Pratt's character so of course, we get to read. So this is another case of like oh, someone yeah. just coming back. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So we get to rehash their tentative relationship once again, which some may argue is lazy writing. Not I. <laughs> not I. <laughs> not I. <laughs> um, anyway, this time the uh, guardians are semi-contentedly living a simple life in nowhere, which is like a Fallout Three hub town in deep space. And Quill, Star-Lord, is an alcoholic because he believes that... That was a specific reference there, by the way. um, He believes Gamora is dead, but but she returns to help when someone called Adam Warlock comes along and trashes the place. Um, And Warlock mortally wounds Rocket. So Star-Lord instantly stops being an alcoholic. And the Guardians must go on an interstellar quest to save Rocket, basically. And the key to their plan is taking down this mad dictator who is doing genetic experiments to create the perfect society, basically. And Rocket was one of those experiments. So that explains the link. Now, I quite enjoyed the first two Guardians movies. Uh, I, I mean, James Gunn's style of, you know, banter and punchlines is a little bit aggravating, but... They add some sharp dialogue, so that's cool. This one doesn't have that, really. The dialogue seems really forced to me, and the magic really just seems to be gone. The cast look like they're going through the motions, and, and to be honest, Star-Lord himself is quite boringly morose for most of the movie. Uh, and there are obviously some action set pieces, but none of them are very coherent. It's It's not just the unclear action there's some just there's some actual just bad editing going on there's a scene where and this stuck in my mind there's a scene where they have like a medium shot of the guardians right standing still and talking in a corridor and then suddenly there's a jump cut and the same characters are suddenly in a different move uh, medium shot except now running towards the camera it's really jarring and like why not cut away to something else then cut back it, and also the pacing is completely off as well. Thank well, you see, so you're watching them, you're watching them like walk, and then all of a sudden it like flashes and they're running. Yeah, well, no, they're just standing still. They're standing still in a corridor, medium shot. Suddenly, 
cuts. They are now running towards a moving camera, but also a medium shot. So it's really jarring. It's like there there needed to be a cutaway there, needed to go somewhere else, come back. It's like it's like the editing is like bad at the kind of micro level, as in like badly edited action scenes. We can't tell what's going on. But then also bad at the more macro level of like just piecing the film together. It's really odd. The pacing. Yes. Way off. And part of that is because it keeps the film keeps constantly cutting back to Rocket's backstory. Right. And mm. this is the very, a very cutesy, sentimental, hackneyed uh, yarn, or possibly yawn, shall we say, about him and his genetically modified friends when he was young. And it's tonally very different from the present day stuff and incredibly boring. Um, and you got this Adam Warlock guy um, who comes and goes from the plot, I would say. Uh, and his presence, it it has it has the hallmarks of someone who is going to be a main antagonist, but then they realise that he's not a very interesting or funny character. So I have no idea what to make of a, of this warlock character, and it but not in a clever or ambiguous way, you know. It's just it's either bad writing or bad editing again, like where big chunks of his character have been just cut out of the story. So I, I don't know what to make of him at all. And then, of course, there's the classic Marvel problem of too much duration, but also too much content. So they, you have a film which is 150 minutes long and it still feels like they're pack, packing in too many plot threads, um, too many new and existing characters, too, and too many like irreverent digressions. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I found it quite vacuous and over sentimental in the end. And even my wife, who loves the first two guardian films found it very disappointing so it's sad and, and, and is it the, is it the last is it the last i believe so yeah it feels like the last one because it feels like they're just going through the motions to be honest like even dave bautista who is kind of like the comic relief like maybe it's just the joke is wearing thin i don't know because obviously the whole joke about him is he just says things extremely bluntly but now I don't know. They all just seem a bit pissed off rather than just like the banter doesn't seem like banter anymore. It just seems like them actually disliking each other. I don't know. Yeah, that, it's, I was just thinking then as you were chatting, I was a couple of things I was, I was looking through James Gunn's filmography. Um, but with, with it's funny you should mention that about Guardians of the Galaxy, because I was the same. I enjoyed the Faye and I really liked the first, we, we watched this like much many years after the original was released and then we we haven't got around to the second one yet and then i didn't even know the third one was coming out but i just find it telling that my favorite my, my favorite thing about marvel and dc universes recently has just been shorts yeah just like anything because because i think that's what but if you think about it you're spending this watch this so say they say they're two and a half hour films that's two, four, six. You're spending like eight, nine hours with these characters yeah. over a decade. And for it to just feel tiring, I don't know, it just seems a bit, depre- <laughs> de- a bit depressing. Because the thing is now, all these people, like Dave Batista's in his 50s, yeah. I think. And and you just, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I know they keep keep doing them. But then I'm just always a bit curious as well. You've got, you've got, you had like a van. You've got you had Spider-Man. You've got Superman, Guardians of the Galaxy, Suicide Squad, Justice League. These big 
it's like how many big groups can they have? Yeah. How much how much needs to be said? How much needs to be covered? How much how many different ways can they uh throw a of, group of people together yeah, and set them uh, off on how a many different dynamics can you possibly have with these sorts of characters? Because they're never gonna you never they're not designed to be like a, a profound examination of like group dynamics or anything. It is literally just a load of bros just kind of like chatting shit to each other really isn't it and it's like okay it all just depends on how well the chemistry works i suppose and the chemistry was there for one and two i think but then you know when did when did the first movie come out was it maybe 10 years ago it can't be that long ago. maybe 10 years ago yeah yeah i mean uh, well actually i'm on the yeah 2014 so nine okay so nearly nearly 10 years ago and i suppose you think about what it's like because you're saying that like dave artist is like in his 50s now like it's a different world for actors now especially when they you think about like <laughs> i don't know like the classic actors of like the mid-century or, or beyond like marlon brando <laughs> i mean like he would never have like got into like played a part in one film and then kind of like bound himself to making a series of sequels to that film. I mean, it would be tiring and boring for them. And no doubt, no, no wonder by the, by the final installment, these actors are just bored of it. You know? Absolutely. Sorry. I'm just, I'm just, um, pause for one second. I'm just feeding Bukowski. He's really meowing. I'll edit this out. Or maybe I won't. Who knows? But I want to talk about, yeah, he's 54 Dave Batista, by the way. But you know what I mean? Like, it must be, it must be a challenge. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not exactly, you know, going to cr- break out the violin. But what, what I mean is, is like, it's, it's I know that someone like Dave Bautista has talked about wanting to be like taken seriously as an actor, etc. You know, and then you kind of like, he must be looking at roles, getting offered roles, and then this comes along. It's like, ah, this is a few months of my life. I could really do without well that's what this, i was that's what, you know sorry I, I don't know if i'm gonna edit that out or not but i was just depending on how loud it was i was just feeding my cat but mm-hmm. i think he's 54 and he seems like a really lovely bloke and if you think he's in like um you know he was in uh glass onion recently and then yeah. the knock of the cabin i know people have really loved him in that i haven't seen that yet and i'm really keen no, for it i really, really want to see that no of course blade it, runner as well so yeah he's, he's showing... been and, and he must just think like oh i'm kind of I, I, you know, it was that was part of nine years ago. That was me kind of moving on from wrestling into this industry. But I realize I want to do more. And yet you're tied to these probably ridiculous <laughs> contracts. It's like mm. I know, I know. But it's even the way the actors seem to introduce themselves now when they, you know, like I don't know, Helen Mirren will rock up or something, and it's like, oh, uh, I'm proud to join the DC universe or, or whatever, as if. Is if there's kind of, a pride in like oh now I'm tied into potentially a massive franchise. And I'm in my seventies. Like, <laughs> it's not. I, it's not. It's not something to be particularly excited about, you know. Like I being tied into some uh, into a studio which is going to it, you know is not going to push any boundaries. It's just purely there to make these generic movies. I, and that's the thing there's so much there's so much money riding on these things now that nothing interesting will ever happen unless it's a little oddball side shoot like werewolf by night and with um 
again, you say, I'm so proud to imagine how much Helen Mirren has accomplished in her life. Is that really all the things you've done, all the theatre when you're like you're proud to join a massive like conglomerate in your seventies? No, you're not. Um, and the other thing I was going to say was someone I overheard someone talking about the Thor films of the day, and, and um, I, I f- totally forgot what the last Thor film was called. And I was just as I was listening to them, I thought the highlight the highlight of that film for me was. Russell Crowe skipping down some steps, lifting up his skirt slightly. It's <laughs> literally the that, funniest bit in the movie. That's the funniest bit in the film, and it's not worth three hundred million dollars. That's it. But it's like that's, but that's what stands out. Not the the world building and all this stuff, because it's just like you said. There's no risk, and with with Marvel, it's like you say with Doctor Strange. He's just an in-universe edit function. It just there's no weight to anything. And well, and evidently it's happening with these. It's happening with DC as well, clearly, because well, it's a flash and that. And it's like, well, I have no interest in that. No. Honestly, I would have no interest in seeing a CG Michael Keaton beating people up. And just, uh, yeah, looking nothing like he did in 1989 at all. Yeah, it's going to be weird. Have you got more... Um... I've got no more Marvel to talk about. You're gonna. Everything. I just wanted. I just wanted to, to tie tie into this a little bit with them, um, because and this is really telling. I watched The Suicide Squad on Amazon, but I forgot to even write it down on my list of films I've seen. <laughs> but yet I remember to write down Black Cauldron. Um, and I think, I just this film was just the Suicide Squad. I remember the use. The, the, the Suicide Squad from a few years ago was a bad film, yeah. and it it was just two and a half hours, as far as I'm concerned, of, of of a group of people bickering and walking down a street. That's what it felt like to me. Yep. And then the Suicide Squad, you you really hammered on it when you reviewed it, I, I guess, like a few months ago. And I and, and I watched it when I was ill, and I was lying in bed, and I wanted something that wasn't too taxing. And Idris Elba is a man whom I fancy, and. And then I was watching it, it said, oh, you know, Sylvester Stallone's in this, Joel Kinnaman again, who I fancy, John Cena, you know, I'm a wrestling fan, Wicked, and Michael Rooker, Jay Courtney, I, I can just list of people I fancy, I don't even know if this is the cast anymore. And, um, and, and I was watching it, and I thought, this isn't very good, this isn't a very good film, and, and I was just trying to, I think, is it because there's too many people, I don't know what, I don't know, usually I complain about these films because um, it feels like they're trying to build a franchise, but this just felt like it, this was just a boring one shot. You know, even if this was a standalone, the whole thing it, with it's like a kind of it felt like it was trying to be like an edge lord Guardians of the Galaxy, but it just seemed like a knockoff, didn't it? Yeah. And I'm watching it. And again, I, I love Joel Kinnaman of all the cast, especially. But I was just breaking the characters down and I thought like, Peacemaker is ridiculous. Um, but King Shark is just was just not funny. He, he had many moments where it was like, you know, they'd bugger off and leave him and he'd mumble to himself. But I thought, I'm not enjoying the action. I'm not enjoying the banter, which is what saved me in Spider-Man. I'm not, like, I'm not, la- I'm not laughing at the comedy. I'm not getting a sense of these actors, characters and skills because it's just so watered down. And I just didn't know what the film was trying to do. And uh, by the end of it, I, and again, at the end, it gets ridiculous in terms of things blowing up and silly stunts. I don't, I just, I, I've come to the point where I just think that regardless of the company behind it or the amount of money behind it, superhero films just are not for me. <laughs> I, I will happily, re, I will happily read like, you know, 
the, the sort of but I'm gonna happen to read the comic books like Batman and stuff, but but again Batman stuff tends to just be more focused on like a, 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 the narrative will take precedence. Yeah. Um, whereas it just, just doesn't in film. They're either desperate to start things off or trying to cram as many characters in as they can for the fans to kind of like point them out to their mates. And it's just, I just feel like there's nothing here for me anymore. I am aware I've, that James Gunn wrote and directed Suicide Squad as well. But there's, I mean, oh, I, yes, of course. I mean, but. I think that even in a way is even more depressing the fact that he's created like a knockoff of his own series. Just well, that, like a that is, slightly shitter version of Guardians depressing. of the Galaxy. Yeah. Shitter, more violent version of Guardians of the Galaxy. Awesome. Yeah, that it's really I was yeah, this film was just how long it felt like a trudge. Yeah. Just yeah. over two hours. It's it's pretty short. My <laughs> superhero standards as well. But um, yeah, you, regardless of like, um, th- th- you know, you got people like bloody Rick Flag is you know effectively like you know, a sort of a, a different side to him and stuff like that. But people can have different sides to their characters. If they're just chucked in the middle of a film that's not very good, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, like I'm looking at this now. The the things that they've said about the film, which just don't come through it. Um, you know, toxic relationship with the Joker, so she can, you know, she's making healthy choices in this film. It's just the same character. Her relationship with Idris Elba's Bloodsport as Abba Costello doesn't come through. It, it, none of that does. It's it might have written been worked on paper, but you. I'm looking at the cast. There's so many people in this film, and there's just no time for anything to evolve and move forward. And I just. No, I, I feel like when I watched Suicide Squad, I actually forgot about it. But it, I'm done with superhero films. I think for a bit. Yeah. Second or Shazam too. If it's got to the point that you and I, you and I are not excited about Michael Keaton coming back as Batman, there's a problem. Because no. <laughs> I just feel like I'm just completely removed from this. The the experiment is over for me. It really is. It's, yes, it's done. I'm not going to watch any film from now on uh, with any computer generated imagery. That's it. I'm going full Dogma. Dogma ninety five. Bloody hell! Well, no CG, I'm no. I'm looking. No sound. <laughs> no score. I love music. I can't remember the rules of Dogma '95. Pretty sure it wasn't allowed any digital effects. You weren't allowed any non-diegetic sound. Uh, can't remember what else. There were some other rules. Um, I will read them out to you now. What okay. is non-diegetic sound anyway? I think I like sometimes get them mixed up, diegetic and non-diegetic. But I think basically it means that. It could be you could have music which was playing within the film world, but not overlaid on top of you. So you no score. So you could have someone play something on the gramophone or whatever. But so I've never heard of this before. I don't think. But I'll, there's okay. ten rules. I'll read them out. So um, mm. I, and I just looked at. I just glanced at this. It already seems like a load of shit to me. But I'm not a <laughs> film student. Uh, so number one. Yeah. Shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. If a particular prop is necessary for the story, a location must be chosen where this prop is to be found. That's, you know, you'd find a way around that, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, you just chuck a fag packet on the floor and say, oh, (laughs) look over here, there's a pack of fags. Can you just pop over there and just leave a broom in the corner, please? (laughs) Uh, Number two, the sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa. The sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa. And then it's in brackets here. Music must not be used unless it occurs where the scene is being shot. Yes. 
Okay. So it's a, you're talking natural sounds, basically. Yeah. Uh, number three, the camera must be handheld. Any movement or immobility attainable in the hand is permitted. Okay. Um, I watched a film. I, I will keep going through these, but I watched a film the other day. Um, I think it was The Bank Job, which I'm going to talk about. And I now watching films where like they, they try to it's like an artificial hand movement. I don't know why they felt they need to shake the camera so much. No one shakes the camera that much unless they're on a bouncy mm-hmm. castle of a kid's party. So you don't need to, you don't need to be waving the camera around. I have now no it's, and, well, the thing that aggravates me now is, is the shaky cam added in post looks even yeah. worse. But that's the thing. Why, why, uh, why would anyone watch a scene and think, Oh I need to fucking shake the camera on like a twat. I think, can you add some shaky cam to it, please? What was that vampire uh, movie we watched with the, where the shaky cam actually made us feel, uh, give us uh, a well, I, I had to look away. I, I had to uh, generally, it's the only film I've, it's ever made me feel sick watching. Um, Oh my God. It was the one with, of course it was Don the Dragon Wilson, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Hang on, Don the Dragon Wilson. I think was, I know it was 1994 because I remember his hair and his clothes. Um, <laughs> Don the Dragon Wilson. I think it's called. It's going to be called Night Something, isn't it? <laughs> Night Shakers. Um, it was not Blood Fist. Night Hunter. 1996. Night, Night Hunter. Um, so, but yeah, I, what I was going to say really quickly before moving on was I have no experience in being a cameraman for films, but I would, it would be hard for me to shake my hand as much as it seems to be required for some films. I don't know why you'd ever need to shake your hand when you're filming something, unless you're kind of mocking an explosion, if you know what I mean. Um, for the film must be in colour. Okay. Special lighting is not acceptable. If there is too little light for exposure, the scene must be cut or a single lamp be attached to the camera. What? Okay. It seems very specific. Yeah. Like why? Why would that rule especially? Why would that be? Why? Yeah. Why not black and white? Why? Um, number five. Optical work and filters are forbidden. Right. Okay. So no more shooting scenes at night in vampire films where everyone's squinting because the sun is beaming down. Shadows galore. <laughs> um, Pussy galore's sister. Uh, number six, the film must not contain superficial action. That's murders, weapons, etc. must not occur. Superficial action. I guess murders, what does it murders like? do occur in real life, though. Yeah. Weapons are available. Superficial in acts. That's weird. Like what action, which is like an enjoyable action scene. You wouldn't better have that. So someone's allowed to like trip over a stone and like hit the head on a yeah. shed, but not they're not allowed to like pull out a shotgun, give a one liner and then fly into space. Okay. Where shotguns no. don't work. That's probably the worst weapon to take into space. Um, number seven, temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. That is to say the film takes place here and now. So it's a... Okay, I'll go through these. Before it can't be a period piece. Right, okay. Yeah, and it can't be set in the future, like Dracula 3000, which I'll talk about later on. Um, eight genre movies are not acceptable. I, what are genre movies, by the way? I've heard this term a lot, but I don't actually know what it means. Well, I mean, it's quite a loose term, but it would be a movie which adheres to certain conventions of a genre, like a, I don't know, like a horror movie, or a slasher, say. It has certain convention certain tropes oh, okay so, uh, so it's not like, like you I, have like sci-fi or fantasy it would have certain tropes and so it could be put into a, a genre i suppose yeah i guess you'd have 
that this is why there's a kind of generic drama or thriller kind of section which is a bit different to something like horror or sci-fi which have quite specific kind of um aesthetics i suppose um but yeah the thing is a lot of these seems a bit unfair a lot of these so far um you know is like at the moment it seems to me like you're going to be limited to a lot of people just like wandering around in cafes talking bollocks that's really i i think well from what i could gather at the time uh when we looked at it at film studies it seemed like an attempt to uh enforce limitations so it would and almost like recapture something of like the french new wave something like that like where like jean-luc goddard would jean-luc goddard purely out of the fact that he didn't have any money or anything had to take a handheld camera onto location in paris and film a movie there in the modern day and you know edit it himself etc out of necessity because of the technology of the time because of his situation at the time and uh, and then you know so you have like a wave of movies which were indie movies which were which were made in that way in the 50s and 60s that's fair enough but they didn't have some sort of manifesto forcing them to do that sort of thing you know so yeah it does seem a little bit forced when, when you were talking then about you know going back to the golden age of cinema and, and forcing limitations i was just thinking this is 1995 this is this is like the rise of vhs and you know and, and indie films and um you know you, there was a lot of like low budget stuff just that was smashing out it it just it was the golden was, age of indie filmmaking oh, yeah it was so. yeah like you look at like quentin tarantino and stuff yeah. so it, it it just seems like this wrong place. If they said now, if they're like, right, no more massive films, let's get stripped back to it. It would make more you sense now than in 1995. Yeah. yeah. Um, number nine, the file format must be, or film format, sorry, must be Academy 35 millimeter. Yeah, I can get on board with that. But but that does not mean you can't shoot digitally then. I Yeah, I can get on board with that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I think digital looks bad. Um, and number 10, the director must not be credited. Ooh, okay. That's odd. Why? Is this like under some misguided idea that everyone's equal on the set? This is, um, and, and, and this, this final quote, I guess, is either from Lars von Trier or Thomas Winterberg. Ma- makes me think the whole thing is almost like a joke that got taken out of hand because there's a quote here from one of them that says, Furthermore, I swear as a director to refrain from personal taste. I'm no longer an artist. I swear to refrain from creating a work, in inverted commas, as I regard the instant as more important than the whole. My supreme goal is to force the truth out of my characters and settings. I swear to do so by the means available and at the cost of any good taste and aesthetic considerations. Thus, I make my vow of chastity. See, again, this seems like, again, a lot of people just mumbling and talking bollocks, like as they walk across the bridge. Given the kind of stuff that Lars von Trier has said since then, the kind of shit he's come out with, he is clearly a trickster and someone who this seems like a job never is, take anything yeah. he take he says seriously because he likes messing with people. So I'm, it may well have been a joke. If he went through the yeah, I mean I'm pretty sure he's been credited in his films. 
yeah, I, I'm just <laughs> pretty sure I, he's got a massive ego as well, really. I'd be intrigued to see what, like, if we could find a list of, oh, there's a category of notable dogma films, um, watching the highest rated one of them. And oh, it's a short list, by the way. And um, Preston the, is on, must be on there. Uh, no, the only the F, celebration. No, the the only F on there is called Fuckland. Oh right. That I'm looking at on. Maybe that the Thomas Thomas Vinterberg did Festen, which I really really liked. Oh really? That was good. Um, yeah, that was a really cool movie. But not because it adhered to those rules particularly. That, are you sure Thomas Vinterberg? Oh, the celebration. Yes, sorry, that is yeah. there. Yeah. Dark comedy drama. Oh okay. Yeah, it's cool that one, but. Anyway, yeah, so clearly Lars von Trude didn't carry this on. Yeah, it seems like a joke, to be honest. That just seems silly. What, surely, if you're if you're a filmmaker, why would you why would you limit yourself? Why would you you take advantage of everything? Because the scope of the human imagination, why would you want to limit it? Um, I mean, m- most indie mm. filmmakers are already incredibly limited. So anyone who's going to take advantage of this Dogma 95 movement would already be limited. Yeah, I suppose it, it maybe it's a, like some idea that you're returning to some kind of a cinematic purity, because uh, obviously, you know, around the time of say the French New Wave, out of that came Cahiers de Cinéma, the French critic magazine, in it, and that was all about cinematic purity. So I don't know. It all seems a bit creepy and religious to me yeah the word purity always causes problems yes. for me when i hear it yeah it's never heard in a good it's like ravine you never hear the word ravine in like a positive sentence it's never oh what a lovely ravine it's like oh yeah push my kids down that ravine or oh the car <laughs> tumbled into the ravine and burst into yeah. flames or yeah the brake on the wheelchair just came off and <laughs> went down the ravine <laughs> came off um so yeah is it, oh, is it my turn to... Um, I think it is, yeah. yeah. I've got an f- hour talking about Scandinavian uh, film movements. Um, I'm just going to... Well, I've got, to be honest, I've got a, I've got a few two-minute trash-ins here, and one of them is a film... I don't often turn off films that are covering the podcast, but my God, I turned this off. I watched, and I was quite excited about it. Um, I'm going to get you, sucker. Um, oh, yeah. I really like Black Dynamite, and I was going to watch that, and I think I was looking for that, and he said, oh, if you like Black Dynamite, you may like this. And I thought, well, I, I've heard of that film. And there's another one about, was it something about drinking juice in the hood? I've forgotten the title of that one. Something uh, in South Central, drinking your juice in the hood. The is it, Are you talking about the the joke, the parody one? Maybe, yeah. But that's Menace sure to for. Society, drinking juice in the hood, whatever it is. It's just a yeah, mashup but, of names, isn't it? Yeah, so I was gonna, I was looking for that kind of thing, and I thought I'll watch mm. this. And then I saw that it was the Wayne's brothers involved, and I, my, my, okay. in, admittedly, one of the worst films I've ever seen was, and I forget which Wayne's brothers were in it. I think it's Keenan Ivory actually was in. Um, it was that bloody. Oh, it was a screen parody or something. Ooh, really? One of the worst films I've ever seen. Not scary Sca- movie. It was like it? Scary Movie Five or something. It was dreadful. Absolutely. Oh. Anyway. It looks like he's always just made dreadful films because if you think about like the black exploitation stuff, if you think about Shaft and basically like, the new Shaft films um, with Richard Rounty and and um, Samuel Jackson in, they're kind of effectively parodies of the original Shaft anyway, but but they they're kind of well done and they're fun. Yeah. Um, 
This there is was just... another shaft one, wasn't there? With three generations of shaft. Yeah, that wasn't ideal. But okay. again, I enjoyed watching it, and there were, yeah. there were like moments I actually like laughed out loud. This is not funny. Um, it's the plot is someone, someone dies, or his brother dies, and Jack Spade comes back from the military, and he just wants to take down uh, the. Uh, it's who is it? It's, I, I want to say it's. I've mixed this up in another film in my mind now. It's not um. Just a bad guy in it. Oh, it doesn't matter. There's someone who's killing people by making them wear lots of gold. It's like an overdose of gold in lieu of drugs, effectively. And again, that wasn't okay. funny. I don't know if it's just a timepiece from the late 80s where Sawi died, an overdose of gold, and then it shows him on the floor and he's covered in gold chains and stuff. And then Keenan Ivory Wines comes back from uh, the military and his sort of childhood lover was was with his brother when he died you know fell in love with him but she says oh, no, i was only with him because he was kind of a replacement for you while um you were in the military uh, and this i'm watching this film and it's basically uh keenan ivory wayne's get, getting a group of sort of people together to take down this gold kingpin and it is not funny like there, there were bits mm-hmm. where I wasn't even sure if they were just talking, if they were actually supposed to be jokes in there, because it's not like airplane. It's not like overly slapstick. Um, it's just like unfunny lines being delivered. So uh, like there, there were points where I thought, right, I can tell these are jokes. Like there's, there were two, two jokes in the film, two jokes. I, I turned her off after about an hour and it's 90 minutes. So I didn't miss much. Two jokes in the entire film that I laughed at. And I, and they were sort of like, huh. One of them was where she says, uh, his mum says, oh, you know, I've left your room just as you just as you left it. And she opens the door and it's just like rotting. And there's like loads of flies in there and stuff. And he's gagging. And it's like, well, that's quite funny because obviously that happens in a lot of American films. Where there's all like bloody varsity flags up and stuff. Yeah. And um, and the second bit is where. When there's the first sort of gunfight and he just like panics and just like starts running around in a circle and screaming and like doing like a really high, like lifting his feet up as the bullets down surrounding. And he gets pulled behind a car and like the real hard man says, I thought you were in the army. And he goes, yeah, I was in the army, but I used to count the bullets or whatever. And he's got all these like ribbons and medals on him. He's like, what are these for? And, he's, and he starts pointing at them and saying, oh, this one's for typing quickly. And this one's for knitting. And that, and I was like, oh, that's quite funny. But, um, yeah, it's not the, worth it. That's it's not. You watch worth an hour, it. and there's one every half hour. That's not enough. Yeah, I, it's a just sitcom, so, which with one laugh per show. That would be yeah, enough. it was not. Um, I, but I was really disappointed in it because I thought this is an '80s like New York, like a, a like grimy America. Here we go, and it was just really boring. It's a boring film. Okay. So, well, so Roger I, Ebert wrote, like all good satires, it is cheerfully willing to be offensive but is almost completely incapable of being funny. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. Yeah. I wasn't even a fan. Like I'm, I'm obviously like absolutely not the target demographic for it, but just not, I, I probably laugh more at vampire in Brooklyn with Eddie Murphy. Whoa. That's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Talk. <laughs> yeah, let's not, let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater. Um, Yeah. Let's okay. not sand our faces off just because we don't like our contact lenses. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to get you, sucker. Where did you watch that? You if know that was on Prime. No, it was on yeah, Prime. It was, yeah. it was. Why wouldn't it be? I watched The Siege on Disney+. Plus. Is that with um, Bruce Willis? Yeah. Well, oh, you okay. say with Bruce Willis. 
<laughs> How much is he in it, really, though? Um, so this was made like three years before 9-11. Uh, and it was quite controversial at the time, apparently. It flopped uh, in part due to protests from Islamic groups. But apparently rentals rocketed after 9-11. So anyway, so Denzel Washington works with Tony Shaloub in the FBI. And they hook up with... Uh, a National Security Council agent, Annette ben- Benning, uh, to take down a jihadist terrorist cell in New York City. But even with her undercover contacts and, of course, the usual Denzel Washington confidence, the bombs just keep blowing up and the bodies keep mounting and civil society is beginning to fray and government patience is wearing thin and martial law is coming and civil rights are about to be trampled and Muslims nationwide are about to be demonized and it captures quite well the like psychological or possibly sociological aftermath of terrorist attacks like people freaking out at a car backfiring or all the discussions about added security at airports for example uh extracting interpreters from foreign countries attacking our way of life all that crap you know um because i remember a lot of that paranoia after uh september 11th Mm. Um, but that I would say is about the extent of the plausibility in the film. Like, it is quite is, is a silly film. Just to, just to refresh a moment, is this yeah. a film where Denzel Washington walks up towards a bus and it explodes? Yeah. Right. I have seen this then relatively recently. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's well, that brings me to one of my first points actually about this. Denzel Washington and Annette Bening are first on scene. It seems to deal with every situation like this. Uh, regardless of the nature of the incident, they are there. They like they might as well show up to rescue kittens from a tree. They're there for everything, it seems. Um, there are some questionable tactics, though. I'd say, like Denzel Washington walking towards the bus is one thing. Do you remember the bit where he deals with a bomber? Right, there's a bomber who's holding an Uzi and holding children hostage. Right, so Denzel Washington dives through the door, rolls across the floor, and then shoots him in slow motion. It's like, it's a film that's stuck between, like, 70s espionage and 90s action twaddle. And ultimately, the twaddle wins out, it's got to be said. It's, there's a weird, clear editing decision as well, that, like, most of the bombings happen off screen. I guess this is to portray the sense that Denzel and his crew are, are always a step behind, but it has this weird muting effect. I found like the like it felt to me like they're saying that the losses, the human losses, are an afterthought, and the real horror actually is the embarrassment of Denzel Washington. Um, uh, Edward Zwick is the director, and he's pretty solid. He made Glory and Defiance and Blood Diamond, and hmm. he, you know, knows how to fill his frame. He moves people about, gets decent performances. Puts the money on the screen, as they say. But I don't. This one's just ridiculously melodramatic, full of like really clunky Hollywood moments and cheap moralizing and zero credulity, really. And I think the part that really doesn't ring true and possibly which dates it the most is the idea that any of this could be satisfyingly concluded by uncovering some evil plot and taking out the bad guy. So if you think about the shit show of the post nine 11 world, right? Um, it's like 
it, it, even by 90 standards, actually, it's ridiculous because they would have experienced the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and all of the threats that followed that. But especially after 9-11, it seems utterly ridiculous. Bruce Willis, by the way, is in the movie for about three minutes. And I think oh, it's really? purely to allay accusations of xenophobia to create this kind of clean moral conclusion. It's not a terrible film, I wouldn't say, and it's because it's fairly enjoyable in a ridiculous way. It, but it's definitely a time capsule. It seems almost naive and quaint uh, in this day and age. Um, uh, you know, and all of this violence on home soil resolved so neatly at the end and it's kind of hard for the u.s to be on the moral high ground after the catastrophes of iraq and afghanistan frankly so but i suppose the the title does have a double meaning like the siege the idea of terrorists taking a whole city or a country under siege but also the way a country could besieges itself uh by instigating martial law etc at the expense of civil freedoms uh but actually, reality is that after the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil, the U.S. didn't become isolationist, but actually headed out into the Middle East to invade two sovereign countries. So there you go. Uh, anyway, it's an interesting snapshot of the American psyche at the time. But it was a psyche that was utterly changed by 9-11, I would say. So... You're not going to watch it again too quickly, then? No, I wouldn't say so. It's very 90s. Uh, but it's fine. You don't get to see Bruce Willis' tip, so as far as I'm concerned, it's not really a film. <laughs> he's, probably, he's probably not going to get out in the middle of like a an action drama, is he? When he, like, is he, is he, he spooning? Just, just to distract them. <laughs> uncovering the conspiracy. Imagine like shouting through a megaphone wearing like full military regalia, walking towards like a, a bus, a bus full of like mothers and fathers and like screaming and as a terrorist waves a gun around and he's like coming up and he says through a megaphone, don't worry, I'm approaching, I'm unarmed and I've got my dick out. You can <laughs> you can see my tip so you know I'm not a threat because, you know, if there was going to be a firefight, I'd put my dick away, wouldn't I? And then the terrorist, like, that's probably fair dues, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, when I joined the army, the first thing they said was never, ever in the middle of a pitched battle, get your dick out. Because <laughs> only, only tragedy will befall you. Um, when I was in the Marines. Um, that's why, they, uh, button flies as well, they said, by the time you get your button flies up, you're done for. That's why you get to the forward. Um, I'm going to move on slightly, because there's a film I've been quite excited to talk about Um <laughs> You know that my brother Transvaal, or Transvaal, his name really comes into effect here, um, because he's bought me some real keepers over the years. Uh, Warhead being one of them, classic. Brilliant. He bought me Dracula Three Thousand. Have you? This is no. a film I've tried. <laughs> no, not not seen it. Don't even want to talk about it. Um. I've had this film. I've owned this film myself on DVD, and I've never watched it because I've looked at the cover. If you type in Dracula 3000 into Wikipedia, oh, it's happening right now. And you look at the cover. Sorry, I've, I've for some reason I'm drinking white wine tonight, and it's just giving me such fierce heart, and I don't know why I drink it. I don't know why I occasionally fancy white wine spritzes. Awful thing. So you look at the cover. It's 3000. It's thousand years into the future, and you're looking yeah. at like a sort of a techno sort of vampire, right? Hang on. The, the tagline is in space there is no daylight 
Well, no, actually, in space, there'd be an abundance of light, wouldn't there? Because there'd be no atmosphere, there'd be no turning of the planet to create a nighttime. So actually, it'd be permanent daylight, really, in space. But OK. <laughs> oh, really? OK, that's the idea. Well, when you think about it, because the only reason we have night and day is because one side of the Earth faces the sun and the other turns the other way. But if you're in space, just floating around with nothing between you and the sun, it'll be always daylight. So that's wrong, Dracula dot three thousand. I'm really glad you brought that to the table because I took that on the face value that well I thought well I mean you say in space there is no daylight but it depends if anyone's got a DVD player and how much of a Sylvester Stallone fan they are. <laughs> um. So yeah. Anyway, I put this on and I thought this is going to be you know it's a horror film it's a mid two thousands horror film and the cast um Casper Van Dien Erica Eleniak who is in another film I'm going to talk about. Tiny Lister, Coolio, and yes, Udo Kier, good. Um, the film starts off with like really bad um, sort of sub-VHS footage of a close-up of Udo Kier's face as if he's in a bloody Albert Pian film. I'm, I, I can't do his accent, but talking and like, oh, my crew, there's something. He's obviously the captain of a ship and he's sweating and he's doing these sort of video logs. And he's like, oh, there's something about my crew. I, I don't know what it is. They started putting a lot of like tomato sauce on their chips recently. And they, they seem quite keen for something. And then it'll, it'll like go and cut to like obviously like a later a later vlog is recording. He's like, so, oh, they're, they're really keen. Aren't they eating eating raw steaks? They're not cooking, not cooking their food at all. And then yeah, their teeth their teeth are bloody pointy I tell you that and then I think I think one of the other day I think drinking blood and I said it's not blood and they went no 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 I think it was blood and then of course he loses his mind and the, and the tape ends sort of thing and um it cuts to Casper Van Dien and they're sort of like pirate salvages so there's this ragtag crew and they they coast through space <laughs> space in which they were, I know now should be permanent daylight and they, with their sunglasses on looking out the windows um, looking for derelict ships to you know to, to rip apart and stuff and they go on this ship and there's only about five of them it's like you've got Casper Van Dien is the captain Erica Eleniak is is the eye candy effectively Tiny Lister uh, is is the muscle and Coolio is <sighs> A token black guy, effectively. Yeah. I guess this would have been around the time that he was in, you know, he was in, um, what, what's that? See? Yes. Deep Blue Sea? Was it LL I'm, Cool J? I, 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 I think that's LL Cool J. I, I, yeah. My rap knowledge isn't great. He was, I was thinking he was in, um, was that one with the Gangster's Paradise of the soundtrack uh, with Michelle Dangerous Pfeiffer in it? Dangerous Minds? Dangerous Minds, yeah, that sort of era. Well, actually, it's, it's later yeah. than that, because that would have been like mid-90s, this is 2004. Anyway. Mm. anyway. Um, so, yeah, watching it. And they come across, you know, these they come across the ship. They're like, "Where is it? Where is everyone?" And then they come across a load of coffins. And mm. Coolio opens one of them, and Dracula pops out. And I shit you not, rip it. He pops out like he's in an Amdram production in the 1960s. He's got like the Good. big col, the big collars that are like wired, and he, he's talking like this. Wow. And then he, he bites Coolio, and Coolio infiltrates their ranks. Is it Udo Kier then? Doing that. No, no, U- Udo Kier is the is the ca- the um the, the guy I just mentioned doing the VHS vlogs. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. So he you, you don't see him after that, sadly. And then 
Coolio just rocks up amongst the gang and he and he's instantly a vampire and he's instantly completely he's been bitten he turns in a nanosecond he's instantly on board with just like yep I'm Dracula's underling and he's on the ship and I'm going to kill you all because now I can't be killed and I'm super strong anyway but before I go on too far this film is the least forward-thinking film I have encountered as a consumer of movies I was watching it and at the start it says it does this thing where it brings up the cast and it, the characters and it is like brrr, as the text moves across the screen like you know Casper Van Dien brrr, Captain Thomas or whatever it is and I thought this is taking a while isn't it almost like I said to fill up the 86 minute running time and he and it says Tiny Lister is called like Tom Parker and I yeah. thought oh, is that like a play on Elvis's manager you know Colonel okay. Tom Parker yeah in the film he's instantly referred to as Palmer, uh, Humvee wow. Palmer. And I thought, so you've literally got that wrong. Um, and that's usually Jesus. a risk for me. When people mispronounce names and stuff, like with Vice, with Thomas Jane, I turn the film off, but I thought I'm going to stick with this. And so uh, I thought, these, this is a thousand years. If you th- imagine, right, we're in the year, say we're in the year 2000, effectively. What was, you, 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 you know your history more than me. A thousand years ago, what kind of situation were we in uh, as a race, a human race, what, 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 it's medieval times. It was so pretty wretched. It was pretty buzzing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty disgusting. Yeah, fourteen wallowing in shit, and there would be like a few million people alive, and bracing ourselves for another <laughs> plague to wipe out a third of the world's population. So, if you moved forward from the year two thousand to the year three, a thousand years into the future, you wouldn't expect people to be using Beretta handguns, wearing jeans and beige vest tops, and using modern slang. I would have thought they, they would have moved on a touch. A touch. They'd at least tra- be wearing shell suits. Space. <laughs> um, there's a scene in it where they're like, what is what is a vampire? Because they, they seem like, well, what is a vampire? And they go on this weird version of the internet, and the tech guy in the team says, oh, apparently... Uh, Dracula was a popular vampire and he was hunted down by someone called Abraham Van Helsing in like in folkloric horror and he turns to Casper Van Dien and says one of the five people on this ship that have come across this derrick with Dracula on it and he says your name is Captain Abraham Van Helsing and he says that's obviously just a coincidence though and I thought I don't know having a Dutch name <laughs> of a vampire hunter bumping into like a fictional horror character who's a vampire that's pretty rare in life to have the name the the historic name of a vampire hunter as well it pushes that even further so and it's just them it's just them being hunted down by this by this vampire but it's done in the most boring, stilted way possible. Because what it boils down to is them locking themselves in various rooms and just bickering. Erica Eleniak panicking, Casper Van Dien like being disbelieving the whole thing, and Tiny Lister just being really overly macho for everything. And it's just them sat in rooms bickering uh, and just getting picked off. And it's so stultifyingly boring. It's unbelievable. Um. It does pick up a tiny bit towards the end. It's got a preposterous end in sequence, the last like 30 seconds. But it's, I just thought 
is this what Casper Van? I remember when I saw him in Starship Troopers in '97 and thought, like an all-American hero with a Dutch name, obviously. Um, and just thinking, I wonder what he's going to do next, and what he did Stick next was. <laughs> Yeah, but it's. It, I shouldn't be surprised by by how bad this was, but I just thought there's no effort to to cast this in the future. No. There's 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 no effort anywhere with anything, and it's just an excuse for people to get into a room and just be stereotypes. Why is it three thousand? Is there anything? Is there any? I assume just so they could say. That? I assume. I generally assume it was a load of people sitting around and said, "Oh, in space, there's no daylight." Oh, boom! Yeah, Dracula in space. How cool is that? that but then, from what you've said, they're wrong on that account anyway. Um, it's just really, really, really boring, and I just found the the humor I got from the film, the enjoyment I took from it, was just in how they just hadn't moved forward technologically in a thousand years. Not Dracula three thousand makes Leprechaun four in space look like Alien. That's one of the key mm. lines from this review. And, uh, and Leprechaun no. four wasn't particularly good either. <laughs> Adventure. Uh, another one to call this film shit is an insult to fragrant brown logs everywhere. There you go. Um, the, the, to be honest, right, I was uh, the two things that Erica Eleniak in this spoiler alert, guys, is a robot and she is the most unconvincing robot I've ever come across. And the yeah. other thing is, I didn't realize Tiny Lister had died because he was in Friday oh, really? and he's been in loads of films, yeah, and, uh, and No Holds Barred and stuff. Died in, um, during COVID, it looks like. I'm just looking at what it was. Type 2 diabetes, COVID-19, uh, hypertension and heart disease. So I didn't know he died. And I always liked him when he rocked up in films. He's only in he was, he was quite oh, cool. Where is this? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I want to talk about a good film now. I have to talk about a good film. We talk about shit for too long. Okay. Um, uh, I've got a couple on it. I'll talk about, I've got a couple of cool horror movies. One of them is Beetlejuice, because we were talking about Michael Keaton earlier, maybe think, ah, let's talk about something cool like Beetlejuice, which I watched on okay. Prime. Um, and this is the film that Tim Burton made after Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and which basically got him the Batman 89 gig, I suppose. It's about a young-ish couple who buy a giant fixer-upper mansion in a small rural community. And What's this called? Sorry, I missed the Beetlejuice. Oh God, Beetlejuice! Sorry, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, or Beetle guys. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yes. Yeah, so they move into this big mansion and then they die in a car crash. But they're stuck in purgatory as ghosts in this house, and their purpose, it transpires, is to dissuade the new owners from re- ruining their idyllic home and turning it into some sort of modernist art hellhole. They can't stop them on their own, though, so they need to employ the services of a grotesque agent of chaos uh, named Beetlegeist, or indeed Beetlejuice. So it's kind of a comedy horror, I suppose. Lots of wonderful makeup effects and stop motion, and an outrageous performance by Michael Keaton as the title character. In fact, the cast is pretty great all around. It's got Alex Baldwin, uh, sorry, Alec Baldwin, um, Gina Davis, Winona Ryder. Catherine O'Hara, Jeffrey Jones, who perhaps <laughs> may have fallen to some disrepute these days. Uh, yeah, but I just think it's Tim Burton 
at his most playful and creatively loose. Because when you think about Tim Burton's run from like Pee Wee in 1985 to Sleepy Hollow in 99, that was just outstanding, really. There wasn't really a dud among them. And then Planet of the Apes happened, and he's never quite shaken that director for higher handle, is he really? Um, anyway, but yeah, Beetlejuice. Uh, it's a few issues like the supernatural powers are quite poorly clarified because like sometimes the ghosts are able to make physical contact with certain items other times they can't sometimes they can possess people other times they can't but it's best not to stop and think about that stuff um and it has a very 80s style ending i found where like you know like in the 80s they didn't really resolve well things were resolved very easily like all crimes are forgiven and uh, this new idyllic normal is just instantly established and we're meant to forget that the mum and dad are just grotesque assholes but there we go but the, the flaws don't dampen the creativity and the fun of it and uh, i think tonally it's bang on as well like the makeup effects are silly rather than really scary and Beetlejuice himself is a like a sweary grotesque oaf but he is strictly portrayed as the bad guy like he is a bad person running amok it never says the film is never saying like oh look at these dullards they need to live a little they need a bit of beetlejuice in their life it's like no he's just a nasty character um there has been talk of a sequel since the early 90s apparently apparently burton tim burton wanted to send beetlejuice to hawaii uh why that just seems like a shit idea like yeah i mean it might as well it might as well be beetlejuice in space really isn't it but um Anyway, it does look like it's finally happening, and predictably, Jenny Ortega of Wednesday fame will be playing uh, a character in this. Uh, I, I guess I think Winona Ryder's in it, so I guess Jenny Ortega will be Winona Ryder's daughter, maybe. Anyway, I suspect it'll be a CG-heavy pastiche of Tim Burton's former self, to be honest, but. At least, I don't know. I don't know whether it's a TV series or not. But it'd be fun to see Michael Keaton, you know, let him rip again. Because it is quite I'd, a unique character. He's another one who rocks up in films. I'm just happy to see him. So yeah. I'm just looking at, like, a lot of his recent films. I mean, he hasn't, he hasn't really been, a, apart from the founder. Yeah. You've got, like, Spider-Man 2017. He, you know, he had a, he obviously was one of the main guys. American Assassin, he was kind of in it. Dumbo, don't care about Worth, never heard of it. And then the Worth Protégé, Mobius, he was a bit Worth in it. Is, I think Worth is Ashes the one. Worth is the one about the guy who was trying to get money for the people involved in 9-11, I think. It's just a decent film. Oh, sounds a bit heavy duty for me. It is heavy. I'll just watch Multiplicity again, I think. <laughs> I won't watch my life. My God, was I tricked? I completely and utterly darfooed myself for that once. Oh, really? Did it make you want to end your life? Oh my God, Nicole Kidman as well. Um, so yeah, does it does it stand up? Do you are you a? Is this one you're going to keep returning to? Do you think? Who Beetlejuice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, I probably watched it every couple of years. Uh, yeah i probably watched it about 10 times in my life and i it's good and it, it does it does hold up because it's got it the effects mostly hold up because it's got a lot of practical effects in it and stop motion always 
stands the test of time. So fine. Uh, and yeah, it's just. And the thing is, like a lot of the cast are still kind of like. Well, I mean, especially Winona Ryder and Catherine O'Hara are very popular now as well. So it's mm. easy to kind of look back at them T- and tie it back to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I didn't realize Jeffrey Jones was such a sausage and batter until I yeah, read about what he's seeing doing. So much of him around. His career after 2002 was very <laughs> different, very different to the preceding decades. Um, I watched it. Um, oh yeah, the the Nike film about Michael Jordan, and I'm not going to go into too much depth about it. I I really enjoyed it, but then I I had a conversation with you offline where I don't know what it is about sports dramas like Moneyball. Where I think because I have no emotional investment in it, and because sports dramas tend to be very talky, and if they're done well, like Moneyball and this, the stakes are kind of laid up very clearly. You basically just end up watching a group of good actors acting well, where there's no there's no action set pieces. Everything is the tension is purely dialogue driven because it's just a lot of conversations. Yeah. Um. I realized that it's actually one of my favorite film genres when I'm mm. when I'm in a very specific mood. So yeah, this is um this is about when Nike was basically on its ass, especially in the basketball division. They're trying to sign Michael Jordan, and you've got Jason Bateman as a you know the Nike office manager, um, Ben Affleck as Phil Knight, who was pretty high. I think he's the CEO of the company. Chris Tucker, Matt Damon is people who try to get uh, get celebrity endorsements. And it's just Matt Damon having a midlife crisis, not a midlife crisis, but just trying to prove his worth to the company and trying to sign Michael Jordan. You got Viola Davis in it, and um, as Michael Jordan's mother, he is really never seen. He's only sort of shot from behind and off screen, so he's to completely take him out of the picture almost. He's almost like the MacGuffin of the film, um, and it's just I just really enjoyed it. It it felt really quick. It felt like a really quick film. It's two hours long though, and. It's just a lot of really great actors um, meshing really well together. And it's so good to see Chris Tucker kind of, you know, with, you know, when you watch Eddie Murphy and you watch films where he's kind of wound in a bit and you can tell he's like he needs full reign, like meet Dave yeah. or Norman or whatever. He needs full reign to shine. He's one of those people. Um, for me, Chris Tucker's the other way around. When he's like kind of reeled in a little bit, like in this, he he really shines because you can tell right. he's he's got such natural charisma, and he's in so few films, but he's so na- generally naturally funny that it kind of works. And when I, when I was watching this, it was. I've got much to say about it beyond the fact that I really enjoyed it. I just watched it. I completely understood the stakes. I understood the impact the events of the film had on the industry and the situation beforehand. Everyone was really clearly drawn and it was just a really mellow, enjoyable film. And it is, I believe on prime. It strikes me that it's like, well, we've said before how streaming services are now the home of mid budget like talky dramas because you're not it's not really going to have legs at the cinema is it these days so but i'm fine with that if they can keep making movies like this i haven't watched it yet i started watching it the other night i thought 
I'm going to need to concentrate on this. <laughs> it, it just feels like got, a film where, like, talking in it. Yeah, it feels like a film where actors get to act. Yeah, yeah. And it it's... felt like, from what I could see, it was reminiscent of like an Aaron Sorkin type script, where it's very snappy, very like almost talking over each other. Um, but I was thinking about what you're saying about like what is, especially sports dramas, um, why it is they're enjoyable, even though I've no real interest in any sports. So, but I think maybe part of it is because you like sports biscuits. <laughs> um. I like start cereal, which is obviously made for athletes. Um, um, no, but <laughs> Kellogg's start. Remember that? It's really nice, actually. I don't think they make it anymore. Uh, anyway, no. What the reason being? Yeah, it's like with sports dramas. It's like it's like this kind of comes with pre-established stakes, as in you kind of know how important it is already because. Even though you, even if you don't follow the sport, you know the importance of major sporting events and the money involved, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's like they don't need to explain why it is that you know basketball is so is like is worth so much or why it matters so much because you know know already. So the, it kind of comes with that already, which is quite useful. So you don't need to have all that establishing stuff. You just crack on with. Um, men talking in rooms basically and and i think there's something as well the the basic pleasure of watching competent or indeed expert people talking about something in quite a technical way and i think you get that in sports dramas especially like you don't it's not you don't understand everything they're saying because they're talking they're using their own lexicon they're using their own jargon but they speak in such a confident way that it's like right okay i'm picking up enough here that i understand what's happening but it's also pleasurable mm. to see people talking in their own world sort of thing so i suppose it's the same as something like uh what glenn gary glenn ross springs to mind or yeah. uh wall street something like that where it's a very specific language that people are using and you're not really understanding all of it but you don't need to so it's pleasure in yeah. that regard yeah, there was there was like there's a key scene in this that kind of um, dro- drove home how well directed it was and how like I am the ultimate layman when it comes especially to like American sports. Um, and when I was watching this, there's a sequence when he has like a Matt Damon has a light bulb moment watching a certain scene of a basketball shot on VHS. And he, and you know, it's when he like pray and rewinds it, and then he like sits up in his chair and goes really close to the screen, and he's watching it over and over again. And I was watching it, thinking, I don't know what you're looking at, I don't know what's happening. It just looks like a generic basketball sequence to me. And then in the next sequence, he explains it, and it's like, oh, okay, I'm on board. Right. Yes. I get. Yeah. And I, I never felt alienated because of my um, ignorance of the sport, or or the even when they start talking about the. Um, the machinations of the um like design of the shoe or the the percentages and draft picks and stuff i i always felt like i was being sort of led through which is nice because it's the kind of film you kind of have to be otherwise it would be boring to be honest if if a layman couldn't watch it it would just be pre- like a technical exercise um so yeah i i, I really uh, like it. Uh, there's a bit in it where they give uh, michael jordan when he says no i'm going to sign with adidas instead and they say what about if we give you a rover p6 
with ele- with ele- with electric windows. And really, it's weird the way it just keeps oh. coming up, doesn't it? Rover P6s, they pop up in a lot of things. But if you watch the film, it's true. It's not a lie. Okay, I believe you. Um, so what's next for you, then, babe? What is next for me? I'm going to talk about. Sorry, so Air is on Prime, isn't it? I've seen that. Yes, on Air is on Prime. It's, it's bloody good. Bloody marvellous. Right. I'm going to talk about Stand By Me, which is on Netflix. So, <laughs> what, what's so funny about that? That's it's just the fact that I also look sentimental. Like one of those films that everyone, like, it's, it's like Spoiler one of those films that, like, it's okay for, like, you know, macho men to cry at. It's one of those films. <laughs> Uh, we'll get to such that. reverence and when you watch it as adult you're like it's all right this is an adaptation of a stephen king i don't know is it a short story or novella called the it'll body be a, anyway. it'll be a, it'll be a it was a, it was a it was an yeah, it was a short story in a novella yeah okay uh it was adapted yes in 1986 you know the sequel was called it was the it was two part of the first one was called stand by me and the sequel it was in the second novella was called oh, actually can you fuck off brilliant um yes so this is uh mid 80s yeah and i suppose and it struck me actually that like now or for the last pretty much 10 years or something we've been living in an era where like the 80s i suppose now to the extent the 90s are kind of 30 years ago so all the screenwriters and filmmakers are feeling nostalgic and they portray an idyllic version of that period. So we've seen them do that with the eighties. And I suppose in the eighties, they would have been harking back to the fifties. Like, you know, if you think about films like back to the future of dead poet society or even porkies, um, but most (laughs) of all, yes, stand by me, which is, uh, this film. And it's a low-key drama about these four 12-year-old friends who live in Castle Rock, of course, who head into the wilderness to find the body of a kid apparently killed by a train. On the way, they get into various minor perils, including some close shaves of trains, some blood-sucking leeches, a savage guard dog. But most of all, Brit, they come of age. They learn a lot about each other and the brutal realities of life. Um... And also, they're being pursued by some older kids, led by Kiefer Sutherland, of course. He's the kind of bully who'd roll his cigarette packet into his t-shirt sleeve. <laughs> and he have a, have a bike chain he'd swing around. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so I've always hated this movie. And okay. it, 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 it's kind of what you alluded to, really. It's just utterly weaponized sentimentality. thing is, even as a kid, I could see right through its disingenuousness. And it's calculating formula and the formula by the way is basically this so the kids will have some close call uh with danger and then three of them will walk away but one of them will remain behind and they'll be strangely affected or crying and then you'll get a schmaltzy heart to heart scene and it's all like hands on shoulders and whispered worldly advice from a bunch of dumb kids recently basically who talk like they're 30 year old school counselors is preposterous. Like there's this idea that the film has some sort of edge to it because there's, you get like these references to more than one abusive parent um, or difficult home life, but they really are just references. They're just more tools to elicit sympathy and just to deepen the sentimentality and distract from the possibility that the kids might just be common or garden delinquents 
course. And it, it's unsophisticated and, and sophisticated and dishonest in the same way that, well, actually, the Shawshank Redemption is also based on a King short story. So perhaps it's something about Stephen King. I don't know. But yeah, what a crock of shit. Uh, yeah, I just, I, as you know, I don't tend to watch sentimental films. They don't, they don't, they don't tease, they don't tease the dog out of my kennel. And, and especially, I'm especially dubious about films that people love from their childhood that are sentimental. And this is in that, um, ticks that box as well. So I've, I think I've watched it a couple of times with people who've liked it a lot more than I have. And I've just sort of sat there thinking, I wish I was doing something else, (laughs) like preparing to hang myself. Um, I can imagine if you were born, if you were a kid in the 50s and then watched it in your 30s, 40s or whatever, like when it was made, you probably think, it probably would be quite nostalgic. But I don't see why anyone like our age brought up in the 80s would get any nostalgia from it because it's like well it's not really for us i don't know know because if you think about pardon me sorry has there been a film made with a nostalgia like a a, a romanticized nostalgia for the 90s um probably some rom-com or something but uh, but i'm just thinking about this i'm looking at the poster now stand by me and it's got you know someone pointing like a, i guess a gat gun or something and then a train and then the four characters and it says if i could only have one food to eat for the rest of my life that's easy pears cherry flavor pears no question about it um so instantly it's like a it's poster designed for, for someone to turn to someone else oh, do, you, do you remember that so i think this, yeah. this falls into the same category as observational comedy for me which is something else i find troublesome um because and i suppose the closest thing that moving aside from the medium of film to the medium of social media when in like 2007 when i started going on facebook and you started Mm -hmm. seeing things where people would share images of blocks of text where it said i remember when you were a kid and you came home when the streetlights came on and you blah 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 blah. you think yeah i was a kid in the 90s it was it was just it was all right. It, you know, it's fine. I don't look. I look by anything. I had a nice childhood because my family. I don't, but not because of the times. No. It's not like it's not like now the streets are just like full of roving paedophiles, which <laughs> seems you're getting at. Um, so yeah. it uh, certainly just, wasn't. It was certainly wasn't idyllic because of like severe technological limitations. Yeah, it's yeah that bothers me as well. Oh, people just stare at their phones. It's like I'm probably looking at my phone doing something I enjoy, which is better than standing in like I don't know, like in a room in, in a bloody queue in a supermarket making small talk with people that I'll never see ever again. How is that better than how is that better than me having like a focused interest on my phone? Just because I'm engaging with anyone doesn't mean I'm having a like a worse time than I would have 50 years ago. You could be um, researching on your phone. You can research Ray Stevenson's entire filmography just like that. You would be struggling, frankly, without that, without your phone. Yeah. So yeah, um, anyone who anyone who romanticizes the past, you can just all fuck off. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was stand by me. I I I got a fe- I just got I got this feeling that it's a film I'll watch again. Well, yeah, it happened. Nietzsche, isn't that? I think didn't he work with Neil Young? Who's that? Jack Nietzsche did the music for this. Yeah, yeah. he played piano with with Neil Young in the seventies. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so that's cool. I think he produced a couple of Neil Young albums as well. What was the music like in it? Oh, it's going to be sentimental, maudlin piano, isn't it? 
I think so, yeah. Pretty sure. <sighs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. It is, I suppose, now watching it now, if you're working like, I, do, I don't really know who Will Wheaton is beyond a single joke in Family Guy, but River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, Kiefer Sutherland, looking at where those people are today and how their lives kind of panned out. Yeah. It's probably probably more interesting than Richard Dreyfuss's summation at the end of the film itself. I think the part of the film that bothers me that, well, no, it was the feeling it left me with pissed me off because it's narrated re- in a really treacly way by um, uh, Richard Dreyfuss. And he he's one of the characters in it and, he, and he's like narrating the story. And at the end, he he basically just explains what happens to everyone. Right. And. It's quite Which depressing. is something that happens in a lot of Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah, and so explains what happens to someone, and not too much of a spoiler, but they they don't remain friends. Put it that way, and and then like basically he's so Richard Dreyfus is now in present day, and he's clearly like a professor or something. He's quite doing quite well for himself. He's got a family, etc. He might, you know, and and. And then he basically says, and so clearly he's led a, a good life. And then mm. he says, he says, you, you know, you'll you'll meet a lot of people in your life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but you'll never have friends like you did when you were twelve, right? Oh fuck! Oh, and this is based this on this one summer of them pissing off into the woods, asking about a bit, getting a leech on their dick, and then that's it. And then that's it. So what you're saying that nothing in life, and this is where, yeah. So it's not even like questioning the nature of nostalgia or anything like that. It's not even like oh, it could be an interesting film about like remembering things differently, if you see what I mean. You know, like how nostalgia can kind of like bend reality and, and create a kind of idealized version of reality. It's nothing like that. It's He's literally saying that they're the best friends I'll ever, ever have. Everything Based on else, what? Based on nothing. Everything else in my life doesn't measure up to that. That's depressing. That's the equivalent it's, of saying of saying my wedding day was the best day of my life. Every day afterwards is a disappointment in comparison. Is a, is a slow decline that's going to yeah. lead to me burying myself alive. <laughs> I, I think which would be fucking tedious. Just drinking a pint of salt. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just, yeah, whenever people, it's the equivalent of people say, oh, you know, school was the best years of your life. And no, it wasn't. It was all right. But you've got no independence. You've got no, yeah, you're just no money. You're, you're completely, you've got nobody. You're completely reliant on adults. Well, you, just, <laughs> you, you bumbling around and like eating sweets was the, but you can do that now if you want on the dole. Don't, don't reminisce. Just do it. Exactly. Just honestly. Yeah. yeah. I, I just have real trouble with nostalgia and reminiscence. It really bothers me because it can be so dangerous. Yeah. I, I, I can think of nothing worse. I mean, I've never been invited back to a school reunion because now with the wonder of modern technology, I, I mean, the reason the reason I don't go back there is because if I did want to reconnect with those people, then I would I, I would have been in contact with them over the last 25 years. Yeah. And again, so is it based on when he says, oh, yeah, though, I never have friends like that. Is it just not is it just there to tug on the heartstrings with no real basis because it's one of those questions you think, yeah. why well, why why you're obviously like a successful author wherever he's doing why have the last 30 years or 40 years been found wanting what would the film would the film have been better if it focused on that i don't like how, well, I, yeah i don't it's not clear because he does explain everything that happened after that and it's not like they were close after that it was literally that summer so 
I don't know. It's, um, so it's just it's just a snow globe in his mind then, effectively, that he shakes every yeah, now and exactly. again and like yeah. Isn't there a there was a um, a really cool horror film called well horror thriller was it summer of eighty four summer of eighty four or eighty six yeah 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 that was really good well, um oh my god yes and it's got a really full on ending yeah and it's really yeah. and I suppose as well what was another film. The one with the the cop car. It's called Cop Car, the one with with Kevin Bacon, Kevin which is Bacon. one of the best films of the last ten years, yeah. These that are movies. It's got the which... most the the most convincing portrayal of children I've ever seen. It's so good. And I'm I think goosebumps I, I, saying it. I, I those two movies sprang to mind. I, I don't even can't even tell whether they're in any kind of a similar era, the setting, but set similar kind of um kind of locations and young people being young people around each other in a convincing way. And I just thought, especially summer of 84, I think it's called summer of 84. And it is. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. And how that so cleverly kind of like takes something like the stand by me nostalgia trip and just totally punches it by, by punches the dream by making it so nasty and like, and like it goes to such a dreadful place if you see what i mean it mm. doesn't it, it it really isn't rose tinted at all it's like it's like they it you desperately want it to be in a way to save these poor people but um no it's definitely worth watching so instead of watching stand by me go and watch summer of 84 um and cock car two things one is that um it's good that films like Stand By Me and The Goonies exist so better films can supersede them decades later yeah. that you can enjoy and you know, actually stand up to scrutiny. Secondly, the older I get, I'm 39 now, I'm 40 this year. I, with each passing year, I'm just glad I'm not dead. Look, I, I generally, because there's so many horror stories and um, I, I remember, and because I, I, I deal, I deal with, with grief and negativity so poorly, I remember my mother saying that... Um, uh, I think I think it was when Faye was first pregnant. She said, I bumped into your friend from school. And I was like, I, she said his name. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I remember him. Yeah, yeah, I remember him having bad breath. That was my memory of him. She said, oh, he's got no he, breath now. <laughs> he yeah, he found out that he's got terminal cancer when his oh. when his wife was pregnant with their first child. So he doesn't know if he's going to see the birth. And I, and, I, and, I, and I was devastated by that because I was in such emotional turmoil myself with like, you know, a child and all the risks and everything that comes with it. I, I thought, I don't, I don't, I don't want to know about these sorts of things. And you think back to all the people that you, you went to school, you used to work with and all the horrible things that have happened and all the horrible news stories that, and people dying young and having to live through these awful things. You think I'm just like glad to be alive now. So I, I especially don't look back and think, oh, wasn't it wicked when I was 11? <laughs> I don't, I don't always do when I was 11. I, I no. probably just like looking at my dick and think, you know, give it a few years, we'll have some fun. <laughs> I, like, I don't, I wasn't like going on adventures that I romanticized 40 years later. I, I don't know. It just doesn't appeal to me. The whole yeah, that thing. Was the other, that's the other thing uh, about, I mean, obviously the kids in Stand By Me are on the cusp of, pubescent sort of thing but it does mean that basically so if they're the best years of your life like it you have no so you're just completely eliminating any sexual contact with women basically as well so you don't get any of that joy either do you that's that's gonna be a perfect little bubble <laughs> yeah, I'm a, tonic 
I might have to watch it just to piss myself off now. Um, what yes. I what a film that I did watch and didn't piss me off was Under Siege. Excellent, good. With uh, Steven Seagal, and it's not so much the film because I got a feeling we may have covered this before on on the podcast. We're not going into too much depth about it, but apart from the fact it's 1992 and so Steven Seagal and uh, Gary Busey and Tommy Lee Jones, but and Rico Leniak. I yeah, who rocked up in Dracula 3000 with a man's haircut. Uh, I was watching, and I'm going to watch the sequel as well if I can find it, with Eric Bogosian. But I purposely went into this film because I was, we mentioned Steven Seagal. We, well, we talk about Steven Seagal a lot on the podcast because he's, he's recent, he, he, as a person, as a as a career, it's just a load of, it's just a load of crumbled up paper thrown into a burning nursery, isn't it, his life? But what I find is, I was this is the highest rated film apparently in IMDb and it, and this was like his his peak his creative peak mm. and and I thought I went back a few years ago when the podcast first started when I was watching things like Nico and Hard to Kill and they were very deeply flawed films and and they were completely when you look at like the greats like uh, great action films of that era like Die Hard with the Weapon it was so far below them it was unbelievable and. I thought, right, I'm going to watch Under Siege again with a kind of critical eye. And it's such a weird melange of things because you've got... Gary Busey's brilliant in it because he's just supposed to be this spiteful, hateful man and he does it really well. Tommy Lee Jones just seems like he's there completely miscast and there to just have fun. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And that, that kind of comes where he just seems like he's having fun. And because it's an actual silly action film, I'm on board with that. But... <laughs> it's like Steven Seagal is constantly trying to just pull the film down by having zero charisma um, because all the beats in the film where he should he should they should be his moments and he should be elevating it and they should be quotable moments it, because of who he is and how he acts and how he whispers everything it, it's like the it's like he's fighting against the genre of the film because it's a big actioner. So moments when he, at the end, when he um, it, like kisses Erica Elenia, it's just awkward. Like it looks awkward. And, yeah. and, and see where he's like bonding with his, at the start before it all kicks off and they get taken over and he's bonding with his crew. It's he, everyone else is doing the night. He's like, yeah, show me what you got, that kind of thing. And he just looks awkward. He looks like he's kind of like a dad who stumbled into a disco. And when there's these sort of um, quick snappy martial art sequences, that's all good. But everything else just doesn't work. And you realize that like, he's in a lot of the film. But the parts of the film that I remember and enjoy are the, just the scenes where he's just not in it. Um, and, and you think, yeah, this like it probably is his best film. And it's because he's sort of pushed to one side. And they do have a really good knife fight at the end, a bizarrely good knife fight that's kind of mm. like horrible but i think the footage is sped up but it's fine that's fine you know it, it, it does look great but he is the worst thing about this film and it is probably his best film yeah that is remarkable he's yes what you were mentioning when you're mentioning him kissing Arika Leniak, it occurs to me that he's like he's not he's not a sexy is he steven scott he's never been sexy he's never been like a sexual presence somehow no it just seems weirdly asexual like even like 
Van Damme in quite a homoerotic way, to be fair. But he's he always gets his ass out, doesn't he? He like he's he seems like someone who wants to like he he's going to get it on with someone. Um, yeah. But Stephen Scal seems like someone who may attack someone, but not really well, well, get it woman. on in a consensual way. Well, may attack yeah. a woman. Attack. Okay. <laughs> In, in this, Erica Elenia, this is so if, her character, right? Because this is a brief film as well. There's a, it's 103 minutes. I guarantee you, most of that's credits. Um, she pops out of the cake with her boobies out, and she's Miss 89, which apparently she was. She was she was a Playboy centerfold. He bumbles her into a cor- into a cupboard and says, "Right, shut up and follow me." And she is a squealing tart. She's a squealing tart. Like, let me out, let me out. What the fuck have I got myself into? Rolling rise at men who fancy her, even though she's a playboy centerfold. And and then there's a sequence where she, he, they're on the deck and they're trying to go across the deck to go down in, into the sort of, what's it called? The, is it called the, what's it called when you go down to the, the belly of the ship, whatever it's called, through a different door. And he gets mm. into a fight, a firefight, and she shoots someone. And she shoots one person once. And then the joke is that they, they, he then comes across the rest of his crew and he saves a lot of people. And one of them is like another kind of wimpy bloke who doesn't want to get involved. And, and you know, oh, hell no, that kind of thing. And she's suddenly really commanding and like and, and like one of the boys. And there's even a bit where he says, oh, do we even shoot this? And she puts a gun together and cocks and reloads it for him. And I thought it's been 10 minutes it, uh, in 10 minutes in real time as well. So, and so halfway through, it's like they just are oh, oh, now. You're just like basically a soldier, and that's how she's treated for the rest of the film. So her character Jesus. development is probably the worst I've seen in a film. But really, if you if you watch Under Siege and you focus on Erica Elenia's character, it's absolutely preposterous how she moves forward. Um, and so it's not not only does she suddenly become really sort of um, proficient with firearms, but she also falls in love with someone who's inherently unlikable within the space of like an hour in real time i reckon if i was on a boat uh, and i I was like i I was there as a stripper and then i came out and i was like oh there's a big firefight and steven seagal bundled me into a cupboard i reckon you could press a button on his watch and i'd say i'm gonna say to him steve in an hour i'm not gonna be good with guns and i'm not gonna fancy you i'm just gonna say that whatever happens next i just want (laughs) to say those two things um so it's a Steven Seagal film, which is good in spite of Steven Seagal. Yeah. And I'll watch yeah. the second one because I know the second, whereas the first one is kind of like it's his best film. The second one was panned. But I remember not minding it, but I'm just intrigued to see how it goes. Was I'm it intrigued Dark to see Train the, or something like that. Was it? Um, Dark Territory. Dark Dark Territory, of course. Yeah. Oh my God, okay. the cover of it. The cover of it. It's astonishing, isn't it? Him just like <laughs> quite idly kind of clinging to the side of a train or everything else is like really rushing on 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 fire fire is it okay okay yeah i'm gonna watch that with my fists and my feet um kirtwood smith is in it good and everett mcgill oh my god what a cast peter green oh my god morris just like rent a creep rent a creep isn't it eric mcgosian everett mcgill morris chestnut peter green kirtwood smith and Catherine heigl how could that not be a better film don't tell me he hooks up with Catherine Heigl. She would have been young. Ninety-five, that was. So she's so. Oh, hang on. no! I think from memory, she plays his daughter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, that would yeah. be creepy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, 
Okay, I, I've got. I'll go through one final one if we've got time. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, but it sets it up nicely for next episode. So uh, I'm okay. going to talk about uh, the Frighteners, uh, which I watched on. Oh, I absolutely adore this film. <laughs> so I yeah, love it. this was Peter Jackson's Sir Peter Jackson's first dabble in Hollywood after the success of Heavenly Creatures, which is also recommended. Uh, it is a bawdy horror comedy, which kind of bridges the gap, I suppose, between Peter Jackson's splatter horror phase and his more, oh, well, uh, whimsical, I suppose, Hollywood output. So Michael J. Fox is very well cast as a roguish charlatan who gets his ghost friends to torment citizens of a small town and then charges the victims to have the ghosts exercised. Um, but then the spirit of a serial killer starts terrorizing the town. Um, played by Jake Busey. And he must, so uh, Michael J. Fox has to use his psychic skills to track down the spectral murderer. Um, apparently this is quite a difficult production because of the really? amount of interactions between like humans and ghosts. Uh, and the, the effects are by Weeter, who'd go on to do Lord of the Rings films, but they were inexperienced with CGI apparently. But then I think to myself, well, if they hadn't gone through this experience, would we have seen such impressive effects in Lord of the Rings? Who knows? I do think there's a bit of uh, some, some unfunny parts of this movie. <laughs> I, the whole thing with um, Arlie Ermey, who's effectively reviving his character from Full Metal Jacket, isn't very funny. Uh, and I, I, probably the humour isn't going to be it for everyone, like because it's quite a lot of it's quite goofy and slapstick. And there's even there's even a couple of necrophilia gags in there. It was good for a laugh. Why and, not? Yeah, but I kind of like that. I like the goofiness, and I think Michael J. Fox is. It, it just so charming and energetic in the main role and and this was actually alongside mars attacks this was his last role before he announced his parkinson's diagnosis um oh yeah there's a ridiculously over the top role for jeffrey coombs clearly yeah, jackson my, my body is a map of pain <laughs> clearly jackson is a fan of unsurprisingly a fan of coombs's work in like reanimator from beyond etc and he just totally dials it up and i think the main reason why this i this film is a cult classic rather than like a mainstream classic if you like is because it does lean harder probably into jackson's like horror roots as in brain dead and bad taste more into that than it does the more palatable output that would come after this so that's why i mean it's kind of a bridge i think it's probably too it's too brutal to have a like a lasting family audience like let's say ghostbusters or something because Mm. essentially jake boosie's character represents the existence of true evil like he's still evil in the afterlife he's that (laughs) evil and and then and 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 he's quite scary in this as well yeah he's full-on and and Michael J. Fox's like character arc is all about overcoming the overwhelming grief of losing his wife. Um, so yeah, it's got a real darkness to it. And I like it for those reasons. I like the fact that it's not palatable and it is confrontational and scary and nasty, but also whilst retaining a sense of sort of like dialed up silliness and slapstick. 
yeah, yeah. and there's a consistent goofiness that that i think makes it kind of unique because you know the self-serious horror movies today they wouldn't go near it like it, i think horror comedy is such a hard balance to hit you, like the, the handful of, of films is... like american wealth and stuff they get it right because they you've got to be funny and scary which is quite a tough one really are you going are you going to say the the true true master of horror comedy the modern one tucker and dale versus evil are you gonna that say? Is, i can throw that in there yep that is absolutely brilliant um yeah. charles stark apparently jake Pussy's character was based on charles starkweather and if you click on charles yeah. starkweather it is astonishingly close to jake Pussy. was he a sausage oh no just in in in, in look if you look at you think of Jake Boosie's character in the Frighteners, and if you click on Charles Starkweather on Wikipedia, the the kind of mugshot of him that comes up, I don't know what he did. Oh, blimey! It is it's the hair. It's the, a bit of Vincent D'Onofrio there as well. Yeah, a touch yeah. of a touch of Vincent. No, you you covered all the bases for me. I it was, it's one of the few sort of cross genre films that I remember really loving as a kid because. Michael J. Fox has such manic energy and and that you've got the blend of the supernatural. It's generally funny and it's so fast paced. And then so many looks for the shocking moments. The the bad guy is genuinely frightening. And there's a touch of sentimentality that works just because it's, it's so briefly sort of tucked in with a rest of a crazy mix of things. I, I love, I really like this film and I will yeah happily watch it every five or six years. Yeah good stuff is it is it the first time you've seen it no i've seen it oh, I, i've probably only seen it two or three times in my life so i need to watch it more good uh john astin's in this as well isn't he was he like the original gomez or something oh is he yes he was one of the original oh, gomez right actors. yeah 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 oh god yeah that makes so sense. uh yeah, I mean, I've got one or two. I'll keep them for next time. But so okay. we have, we have, we've got the, um, uh, we've got the Arkansas to cover, and mm. also we've got to. You, how is this going to set up for? Should we do the Arkansas first, and then you can talk how this is going to set up the next episode? Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. So Arkansas was Channing Tatum to Stockard Channing. <laughs> yeah, which is brilliant. Yeah, getting the getting the Channings in there. So I've got. I got two entries. Uh, one yep. is from Utah Smith, and he says, "Stockard Channing is in Practical Magic with Sandra Bullock, who is in The Lost City with Channing Tatum." Get out! Boom. Well, that's a two-step straight out of Shit. the barn. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, take it yours. Isn't the two Shit. Um, and, and Practical Magic as well. Isn't that a film with like Nicole Kidman? Yeah, yeah. And Sandra Bullock. So. Yeah, uh, Laszlo says, Howdy, I wish I had a more interesting answer to the Channing challenge, but all I have is Stockard Channing was in Greece with John Travolta, who was in Pulp Fiction with Bruce Willis, who was in G.I. Joe Retaliation with Channing Tatum. <laughs> By the way, if you fancy seeing Che Tat in a meteor role, have you seen Foxcatcher? My answer to that was Jesus. no, I haven't. And also I said, Laszlo, is it streaming anyway? And he said, no, it isn't. So Excellent. that's going to... But it's a sports drama, so it could be... Um... That's a dark film. That is really, is really it? dark. Yeah, oh. and it's, uh, it's got an amazing performance by what's his name? It's, Steve Carell. Steve Carell, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the less you know, the better. But yeah, I yeah, I, I I thought it was a sports drama, so I'm yeah, I certainly don't know any more than that. I'll definitely dive into it. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah it is set around that a, a sport. But yes, um, well worth a watch. 
Uh, so mine is, while I say I, Channing Tatum is in The Hateful Eight with Tim Roth, who's in Pulp Fiction with John Travolta, who's in Greece with Stockard Channing. So it's a three. Oh, OK. Yeah. Um, before we move on to the Arkansas, what oh, we, we need to sorry to set the new Arkansas. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say was I watched a, a multitude of Disney films I've knocked out of the um, podcast oh, yeah. this week for time reasons. Like my children. Yeah, Black Cauldron, Jungle Book, uh, Sword in the Source, Sword in the Stone. I've watched about six or seven. Black With... Cauldron was the first one I ever saw at the cinema. Really? It's yeah. good. I, it's, I enjoyed it's it. And it's, it's really dark, yeah. Uh, there's not too many songs in that one. <laughs> I'll let you. Um, the Jungle Book, I was really perturbed because I've seen Jungle Book in bits and pieces through the years. The Mowgli's shrug at the end before he just joins the human village. Uh, I, I, I wasn't... So... You can't remember this. No, I, no, it doesn't ring a bell. So, so, you know, the whole way through, it's like, what's it? It's not. Oh, I'm going to get the names mixed up now. Sh- not Shere Khan is the tiger, isn't it? Yeah. And then you've got Baloo is the bear. Baloo is the bear. What's the name of the panther that leads him through the whole film? Ooh, I can't tell you that. I don't know. Anyway, that panther is like we're yeah. going to get back. We got to get back to the human village. Yeah. It's going to piss me off. I'm going to have to look this up. Sorry. So. That's this jungle book. Did you watch Robin Hood, the Disney version of Robin Hood? Oh, that's, that's my it's my favorite Disney film, so I've seen that many, many times. Okay, Jeez, you should watch it straight after Jungle Book, and then you can see where they reuse the animation. Oh, that'd be quite cool. Uh, hang on, so it's Mowgli, uh, Baloo, Bagheera, Bagheera's the panther. Oh. So, so <laughs> Bagheera is like, right, let's get him out in the village. Baloo is like, no, let him stay in the jungle. He's awesome. And then when they go back they see like a little girl and she sort of outside the village and she's, she drops like the water bowl and then Mowgli goes out and picks it up. And as he goes back off, she goes into the village and he turns around and looks at Blue and Bagheera and he just kind of shrugs and follows her. Mm. And I, and I thought that seems really ambiguous for a child's yeah, Disney. Seems- I was watching and I thought, what is, is he, is he, is he shrugging? Is he shrugging? Like, Oh, what are you going to do? I fancy girls. I didn't know. I didn't know what the shrug <laughs> meant. I thought, why? Like, he, there was no. He didn't turn around, and there was no like. And she's like, "Come on!" And he and he's like, "Oh, sorry." It was a really weird shrug. I couldn't. It it really tainted my enjoyment of the film. If you watch that sequence, maybe someone can explain to me. Maybe maybe I'm just overanalyzing. But from the conversations that Bagheera and Baloo are having, and it's and then it's such a weirdly ambiguous gesticulation to make before oh, where you make... are the imdb forums when you need them eh <laughs> are they gone now yeah they got taken offline after i want to say ghostbusters 2016 oh, it, were, after they to- were they toxic then some particularly toxic um yeah threads yeah i can fully understand why they took them offline it's like it's not worth the heat <laughs> to be honest but <laughs> occasionally you would for really obscure films they were brilliant because you would there'd be people like really hips deep in some really obscure film and just discussing like theories about them it's exactly the kind of thing you'd have on on there like uh, it would like the thread would be titled the shrug or something like that and then you'd go deep into it i'm i'm, I'm up for that i'm up for i think you need to research it there must be someone out there must have the same question it's thing is, like an iconic I... film if I type in the shrug, it'll just be a load of bloody Matthew McConaughey film covers that come back. But the other thing is, um, I remember using the MDB forums years ago, years and years and years ago, because I typed in, what's that film? 
where there's a bloke and he goes to an island and then he fights off a lot of zombies by dancing on a pommel horse and within seconds someone <laughs> said jim carter in 1985 <laughs> and i was so happy with that because my grandfather's favorite karate film um and I, one we should cover on the show really if we haven't done it yet. Really um so what is what's the arkansas going to be rupert so uh yeah. i'm just looking at my films um I'm going to just, just because I don't get that. I mean, she cropped up in two films. So I'm going to say my choice is going to be Erica Eleniak. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. I literally watched Under Siege, and the next day I put on the DVD from Transvaal or Dracula 3000. I thought, what are the fucking chances that she turns up in these? <laughs> um, so, yeah, Erica Eleniak 2. Uh, can it be another female? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Annette Benning. Yeah, okay. So Erica Eleniak to Annette Benning. Um two icons, female icons of modern cinema. So are you going to lay out the you said it's a setup for the next episode? Oh yeah. So um yes, so Peter Jackson did Frighteners and then he obviously did Lord of the Rings. I am gonna cover all six Middle Earth films on the next episode. Oh, oh nice. Mm-hmm. This will be a nice little journey for me because I've seen the three of them, but I haven't, I haven't, I've not seen the, I'm so surprised there's three Hobbit films because I've seen the thickness of that book. <laughs> yeah. So it's all there and I'm ready for it. My body is ready. Um. So what are the and films of the week? My, I'm not going to, my film of the week was, was a, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. For me. Um, I must stand by me because it really brings me back to the best time in my life. Yeah, when you were uh, a child growing up in the fifties in Maine, you really you really connected with it, didn't you? <laughs> uh, well, it's really a toss up between the Frighteners and Beetlejuice. Oh, can uh, it be the Frighteners? Can it be the Frighteners? Because the Frighteners never gets any love, and it's always been one of my favourite. Fr- I think films. so. Yes, it, like Beetlejuice is quite well established, uh, yeah. and I get the feeling that. I, they're going to make the sequel and it's going to piss me off and I'm going to like the original less <laughs> because of it. But Frighteners, yeah. Frighteners, they, yeah. They're, they're not going to make a sequel. They're, they're, they're not going to yeah. do a sequel and they're not going to remake it, even though it's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Rupert, I love you and I hope that if you die, you haunt the shit out of me and at some point you fly up my bum. It's a date. Hey, it's Tia Career, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. Hey, 